You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Moe Gamer podcast. Possibly the last of 2020, depending on if we squeeze one in before the end of the year or not. But uh, yeah, we'll be doing a sort of roundup of the year today rather than uh, necessarily a specific topic as you'll find out a little bit more about later on. I'm Pete Davison from MoeGamer.net, and as usual, I'm joined by my good friend Chris Kasky from CKaskyArt.com. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Wonderful. Going? Yeah, not too bad. I uh, I bought an Atari Jaguar this morning. Oh, that's interesting. Are you going to get uh, <laughs> Trevor McFur in the Crescent Galaxy? Yes, yes I am. Yes. Um, Jaguar games are pretty expensive, but um, Atari Age are... Or they have done in the past, and they've they've got a new batch on the way of a um, a thing called the Game Drive, which is basically an EverDrive for the for the Jaguar. So I'm oh, going to grab cool. one, grab one of them, and um, most of the ROMs for the commercially available games on the Jaguar are on Archive.org and Atari Mania. So to begin with, at least I'm just going to load up one of those with uh, with Perfect. as much as I can, uh, and then anything I particularly like, I'll try and get a box copy of. The, uh, the one I've bought comes with um, Cybermorph, Sensible World of Soccer, and something else that I've forgotten the name of. So, so it comes it comes with three games and an RGB SCART cable, which is uh, oh, which snap. is good. So should get a lovely picture out of that and be able to do some video capture from it as well. So Jaguar has what might be the stupidest controller in history. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it is the spiritual successor to the 5200 controller, which actually is the stupidest controller in existence. But the, the Jaguar is basically the 5200 controller combined with an actual joypad. <laughs> Gotta love that telephone keypad. I, what, yeah, I, do. I never... <laughs> I remember I remember when I was really young and um, the we had a... We have a, had, past tense, a, a line of toy stores called KB Toys in the States. Yeah, yeah, which was yeah I'm familiar. Yeah. Essentially, KB Toys was like they all, they really only existed in malls. Like yeah. It was like a mall toy store, and it was basically just like we're going to take advantage of the fact that you were in the mall. So like everything here is more expensive than it would be in a normal toy store or a department <laughs> store. Just like everything was like five dollars more. Like an action yeah. figure that would be eight dollars was like eleven ninety nine at KB, right? Yeah. Um, but they would also, on the flip side, liquidate shit aggressively, like way yeah. more than like the normal toy stores were would around me. So like, I remember when I was a kid, I never obviously didn't have a Jaguar because uh, woe betide anyone who paid full price for a Jaguar. Um, <laughs> but 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 I, I obviously I wanted every video game ever anyway. Like even if I knew it was garbage. So like yeah, I remember as a kid and I, I got like a five dollar a week allowance. And I remember when KB started liquidating Jaguar consoles for 19.99, oh, and wow. and the games for 4.99. Yeah. So like, I saved up for like two months. Like, I had forty dollars. I was gonna be able to get the Jaguar and like four games, and the, but they were gone. Like the two months it took oh, me no. to load up my allowance, they were sold out. <laughs> it's like, the, like that's really my only my only memory of of the jaguar is like playing like i don't even remember what games it was like on the demo units at kb yeah. toys like while my mom got her hair done 
at the mall salon and like and like scrimping my forty dollars together over two months to try to buy a blowout <laughs> unit. And, yeah. Uh, well, um, I I actually reviewed the Jaguar when it first released, um, as uh, my my brother was he'd, he'd left home. Uh, at the time and was working on a multi-format games magazine and whenever he came back to visit he would inevitably come bearing gifts or, or things that he borrowed from the office anyway and one time he um he brought a jaguar home with him because they, they had just come into the office and they'd been having a fiddle around with it and so on so uh, i got a chance to to play with one when it was new uh, and then me and a friend wrote about it for uh, page six magazine which is the old atari magazine that uh, my whole family basically contributed to at one point or another so in one of the very late issues of page six when it went back to being a subscription only magazine there is a, a review um co-authored by me about the atari jaguar so that's all very exciting. We only had one game to play with it on the time there, which was Cybermorph, which is uh, it's a it's a, a decent game. The I think the sequel, Battle Morph, on the Jaguar CD is supposed to be a bit better, but um, yeah, Jaguar <laughs> Jaguar CD is insanely expensive now, but the the, yeah. the Jaguar itself is still fairly affordable. But um, God, no, I, I just I, I just thought it would be interesting because there's there's quite a small library of games, so it's something that you could feasibly attempt a full collection for uh in fact the, the cd unit only has 11 games so if you do manage to get a unit there's only there's only a few games to collect for it and i think there's only something like i don't know 60 or 70 jaguar games altogether yeah um, Jaguar like is I, an interesting interesting it is interesting to talk about because it was technologically great like the jaguar yeah. was great for its time but there's just nothing to play on it <laughs> like, well like, I, I mean well they're they're okay Mm. Nothing. Nothing. I think is worth buying. <laughs> but you're a lot. You're a lot more forgiving than I am of like Atari jank. Like, <laughs> like. Well, we can talk about it in another cast. But like, I got the Atari Lynx cartridges for for the Evercade, and I, the whole time it just made me sad. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, like, so. But, but from like a like a development standpoint, it's like I used to do a lot of reading on like hardcore gaming 101, and like a lot of their write-ups of like Jaguar games on there were always just like this is tragic because it runs beautifully, but the game is ass. Like, <laughs> like, like this game isn't worth playing. If this was a game worth playing, this would be celebrated because it runs beautifully, it displays beautifully. Like the Jaguar had amazing capabilities for its time, but just like it had no support. Yeah, I mean that that was the big problem. Like there was there was absolutely no third party support, which which is the same problem that Lynx had, um, and indeed the the same problem that all of the Atari consoles after the twenty six hundred had really. So, um, and I mean there's all sorts of reasons for that, but uh, yeah, it was Atari was just on a steep decline from the twenty six hundred onwards, really. So, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting platform, and there's there's some interesting games on it. Like you say, not necessarily the best games out there or anything but they, there are ones where they were trying interesting things and that sort of thing and i've always wanted to try stuff like alien versus predator on there it's supposed to be legendarily actually quite good yeah that's like um, the game that's like yeah. the game for the jaguar yeah um and then there's sort of reimaginings of some of the Lynx titles as well there's things like there's a version of checkered flag on um the jaguar there's a version of blue lightning i think that might be a cd game oh, cool. um 
and and a few others as well so it'll be interesting to sort of compare and contrast how they approach that with very different hardware but uh yeah i thought it'd be interesting to pick up i got some money from uh from my parents for christmas and god knows i don't want a next gen console at the minute so i thought i'd buy uh, a console that no one wanted back when it was new so uh, there you go if i could buy a next gen console i would because i just really want to play that enhanced version of double may cry 5 mm. uh but uh, it's, it's even if it was it's not an option anyway so yeah. <laughs> if you i called uh, best buy support helpline the other day because they sent me a wrong item on one of my orders and there's just a default message that plays when you call the Best Buy customer support line. Like, if you're looking for a PS5 or an Xbox Series console, we know. Yeah. <laughs> like, like <laughs> we don't have them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hilarious that apparently people were calling. I guess Christmas time, but they they, they, they felt the need to put that <laughs> as just like a default message. It's, it's ridiculous, though. Like, you think they would have nailed this by now? It's like, because they always launch these consoles around Christmas, and they always fuck it up. <laughs> but it just seems to have been particularly bad this time around. Uh, the, the, the scalping issue has been huge this time around. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's been a, a real serious problem that they're trying to crack down on, uh, but and failing miserably at the moment from what I can make out. But uh, yeah, scalping has been a huge issue with PS5 in particular. It's like people selling it for like $900 and that sort of thing, and, and idiots paying for it, so... Yeah, um, for for their kids, right? People or or, or yeah. for for themselves, but like what people will do for their kids is like there was a, I I can't I don't think it was you I was talking to I was talking to a friend, but like he was uh he he shared this rant from like Facebook I'm not on Facebook but like someone had like ranted on Facebook about one of the uh, on like one of the like gaming boards he was on about like what's really sad about the scarcity of the PS5 are that adults are buying it for themselves and children won't be able to have it for Christmas. Oh no. And, and, our, resp- and our response <laughs> to that was just like, fuck children. <laughs> like, what are, like what are children going to play on the PS5? Well, like, yeah. For, like from Dev- that launch Devil, May Cr- Devil May yeah. Cry 5 or Call of Duty. Like, yeah. fuck, like fuck children. <laughs> Switch switches are readily available. <laughs> like I don't, I don't want to hear that nonsense. Oh, are they gonna? Yeah. Hey, little Timmy, you're seven years old. It's time for you to learn about the Maiden in Black. <laughs> <laughs> it's time you learned about existential dread, and only the way a From Software Souls game can teach you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess it's never yep. too early. No, that's true. But also, your average seven-year-old is probably going to play Demon Souls, die once, and then want to go and play something else instead. So, or master <laughs> it instantly. Yeah, and make me feel like garbage because <laughs> they're <laughs> all savants anymore. Uh. Anyway, um, right. So today, what we're going to do? We're going to follow our usual three-part format. We're uh, going to start with a bit of news after that initial discussion we've had there. Um, we're going to follow that with uh, some talk of what we've been playing recently. And then our third segment today, we're just going to sort of celebrate some of the stuff we've played throughout this year. Uh, just pick out some things that have stood out to us over the course of the last 12 months or so uh, and talk about those. So fairly sort of light and breezy structure today. We're not sort of uh, heavily structuring our discussion or anything like that. Um, but yeah, we just thought we'd, it would be a good opportunity to wrap up uh, a hell of a year. <laughs> anyway. 
It's been a right. good year for gaming. <laughs> it has been a good year for gaming, yes, yes. And it's been a, a, a great time to stay at home and, and play games. So, yes, I suppose you can say that for it, at least. Anyway, right, uh, news headlines that we've picked out then. As always, in no particular order, um, we start with the news that Saga Frontier is apparently getting a remaster. This was the 1998 PS1 RPG um, from the age when uh, Europe didn't get hardly any Square Enix games. Uh, and as such i've never played this one um i always thought this sounded really interesting though so i've always wanted to play it but for one reason or another i've never actually picked up a copy of it so this is coming to uh ps4 switch pc and smartphones in summer of 2021 so hopefully this won't be the usual garbage smartphone port that square enix does that's that ends up ported to other platforms um it's yeah it, it it certainly looks nice so far and what they're doing is they are adding in an extra hero who i believe you said he was originally supposed to be incorporated into the original version but they either didn't have time or ran out of money or whatever so yeah my expertise right? my expertise on saga is as you know limited mm-hmm. <laughs> not unlimited but um but uh it's my understanding that there was originally always supposed to be another hero in the the, the original game, but uh, like due to budget constraints and rushing and getting the game out, uh, he was left yeah. out. But there, there is um, like because the whole point of Saga Frontier is that like all the characters, it's different stories. You play through each of the characters, and then their stories intertwine. Like there's moments where they intersect and meet. Um, I think everyone's kind of familiar with that this is how saga works at this point right yeah um but there are threads the threads for his story were never like edited out yeah yeah so i mean like i i had a friend who when like i don't know whatever grade we were in when like this game came out like the fifth grade or something was just obsessed with this game and it was classic like recess and like lunchroom well, I guess it's in recess in fifth grade, but like lunchroom dialogue shit or like break period study hall, like huddled in the corner with our, like, our notes on like how we think you can unlock this guy because, <laughs> yeah. because the, the threads in the game made it so clear that like he was going to be there somehow. And like, we just had to beat the game in like under 20 hours or we just had to like collect a thousand of this. You know how it was back in yeah, the day yeah, when yeah. it was like magazines and internet in its infancy was like, yeah. rumors and, and 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 trying to figure stuff out yeah our, our go-to joke our go-to joke for that in in the playground was always oh you walk backward at the start and you end up at the final boss <laughs> yeah 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 shit like that like water cooler shit um yeah. so yeah if this is what i think it is this this is probably that like guy who, who was always mm-hmm. rumored rumored to be playable and, and to the disappointment of many a 13 year old was not ever actually in the game <laughs> yeah so it sounds as if the the new character is called fuse um and what they've done is there are also uh, a bunch of events that weren't implemented into one of the existing characters story as well so this is basically going to be a sort of definitive edition of saga frontier in theory um so yeah um we got high resolution backgrounds and sprites uh like i say hopefully that doesn't mean that they give them the treatment that final fantasy got on its mobile ports but uh we shall see yeah the footage is quite nice yeah 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 so the the, the actual saga ports that uh that square have done uh over the last couple of years have, have turned out quite nicely so so hope is pretty good for this one yeah i uh, have the saga 3 for switch yeah I, I was really happy with it mm-hmm. yeah 
Uh, so that's coming in summer of 2021, from the sound of things. Uh, so watch out for that then. Next up, uh, we had an announcement that we're getting a new The World Ends With You game called Neo The World Ends With You. Uh, so this is a brand new game, uh, again, coming in summer 2021. And uh, yeah, so there's a, a teaser trailer out for that now. Uh, it shows some of the new characters, uh, new environments, uh, the way exploration works. And um, this is going to be a mostly 3D game rather than 2D like the previous one. So you play much of the first one? kind of hate it uh, i'm like uh, really on the, i'm really on the outs with that series like it's one uh -huh. of those it's one of those games where like everyone just raves about it constantly and i'm like i thought that game was absolute rubbish <laughs> but uh <laughs> but i'm in the minority so i i'm willing to give this new one a try again um i think part of the reason i didn't like the original was because i just hate touchscreen controls so yeah. much and it was such yeah. a heavy it relied so heavily on touchscreen controls i just couldn't figure the combat out yeah um I was always really saddened by the fact that I didn't like it because I visually I love it. Like I love yeah, the whole idea yeah. of it. Um, I think that the visual style of it's unique. So I'm definitely willing to give the new one a try, especially because if it's for modern consoles, it may have some touchscreen capability on like the Switch version, but it won't have to rely on that if it's going to be ported into like everything else. So yeah, um, it'll definitely be worth. I'll definitely give it another try, and hopefully, it's finally the opportunity for me to kind of enjoy the series again because the idea of uh, a stylized role-playing game with rhythm elements mm -hmm. is delightful and it it disappoints me that i don't like the first one yeah 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 I, I i have a copy of the first one on ds i haven't spent a ton of time with it i didn't hate it but but like you i sort of found the combat a bit difficult to get to grips with but i think that's it's a case of sort of spending some time with it and getting getting used to sort of how you can because it was all about sort of sliding discs around and stuff wasn't it um it's sort of yeah. getting a feel for how that all works and that sort of thing and uh, i i think at the, at the time i was playing it i was into some other stuff as well so i i sort of never never went back and and beat it or anything like that so but uh, i i do have a copy which is good because it's quite difficult to get hold of these days in the original ds version so yeah, yeah. I never really heard much about whether or not the Switch port was was worth getting. Mm, I didn't either. It, it sort of it, everyone was sort of super excited about it, and then it sort of disappeared. And was like I remember oh. reading that like the the compromises and like the stuff they had to the stuff they had to finagle for the combat to make it work on the controller really didn't work out. Yeah, like you're basically just doing the touchscreen stuff with the analog, from what I understand, yeah. and it's just mm. like. Eh. That sounds yeah, like that's... it's even less wieldy than it was on the touchscreen. <laughs> so, like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, that is coming in summer 2021. So there's an official site up for that now. So you can find out a bit of information about it and watch a trailer and so on. Uh, next up, uh, Galgun Returns has had its release date set for February the 12th, 2021. Uh, and they've released the opening movie for it now as well. So you can uh, you can watch that. Uh, so Galgun Returns is a remake of the first Galgun game that was originally released for Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 um, quite a while back now. Um, uh, but then there's a bunch of different additions to it as well. So there's some new uh, event images, there's um, some new sort of bits of story, there's 423 different pieces of underwear to collect, uh, <laughs> and uh, language support for English, Japanese, Korean and Chinese. So... There's, uh, there's a nice limited edition available from Rice Digital here in the UK uh, on that as well that comes with safety goggles. 
um, which is actually a, a bra to go with the panties that came with uh, Galgun double piece. <laughs> uh, yes, so if 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 you want that, that is that is now available for pre-order. Looking forward to this. I do like a bit of Galgun, and uh, I've been long been interested in seeing where it comes from because one thing I, I found exploring uh, Double Piece and Galgun Two is that I mean this shouldn't be a surprise from Integrates or anything like that, but it's it's very sort of internally consistent. They've actually sort of made a real effort with the world building and the characters and so on. Hmm. And so um, in Double Piece and Galgun Two, for example, there's there's statues of this girl all over the place, who is obviously something to do with the school. And in the first game, that girl is a character, so you should find out why she's relevant and why she's got statues all over the place and that sort of thing so oh that's cool yeah so so i'm interested to sort of see where to see that story where it all begins and so on and uh, and also the additions that they've got with it so and also Cl- you know how much we love integrate so yeah yeah Cl- clarify for me once again mm-hmm. so there's two obviously self-explanatory that's a sequel to the first one double piece is like a sequel to two no no um double piece is a direct sequel to the first one and okay. then Galgun, Galgun 2 is largely unrelated to either of them. Okay. Uh, it, it unfolds in the same school, um, but um, I think the only returning character is uh, Corona, the devil. Okay. The, the rest of the cast is original. So Galgun 2 kind of stands by itself. Okay. Um, whereas whereas double, P, double Piece is a direct follow-up to the first one. Uh, okay. you, you don't need to have played the first one to understand Double Piece, but there are some references to the events of the first one. So in the same way that Bravely Default 2, the third one, is... Yeah, is, yeah Ga- Galgon 2 is the third one as well. Okay, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. It's actually the exact same thing. Bravely... Yeah. Bravely... Uh, what, what was the second Bravely Default called? Bravely Second, wasn't it? Yeah, Bravely Second is a direct sequel to Bravely Default. Bravely Default 2 appears to be like totally unrelated. So it's like a yeah. whole another. All right. That makes sense. I still got to grab these. I don't have any of them. Mm-hmm. The Switch yeah, versions are relatively complete, aren't they? They have like a lot of the DLC and stuff on them. Most of the DLC doesn't matter, to be honest, because it, there's like no story content or anything particularly worthwhile. There's some costumes. Yeah. There is like there is like um, I think there's like there's like a digital bundle you can get um, that has all the costumes and stuff. But the the physical Switch version they did, um, I don't. I think it might come with a couple of the costumes. It certainly doesn't come with all of them, but it comes sure. with a couple of them. But you don't really need them anyway, because there's enough stuff in the game already to to keep you busy. I'm not worried about cosmetic DLC, but yeah, but if, yeah, like this, the this game this, has all the content of the game. Yeah, you know what I mean. The, the, the whole game is there. There's no there's no game missing. It's 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 purely cosmetic stuff that that, uh, that I've certainly never felt the need to download. So okay, cool. Right, uh, moving on, uh, Shirin the Wanderer 5 is on the way and it's getting physical copies handled by Limited Run. Um, when is that happening? We don't uh, know when the Limited Run copies are happening. Uh, okay, yet. yeah, it's it's just come out on Switch and PC. Um, and physical, yeah, physical copies don't have a release window just yet, but Limited Run are working on it, so keep an eye on things there. It's worth noting a Limited Run at the minute. They've got a huge backlog of stuff at the moment um, due to the events of the last year basically and um so yeah it may be a little while before they start putting up too much new stuff um but yeah keep an eye out as always and expect it when you see it as with most of the limited run stuff <laughs> yeah i mean they are they are continuing to take pre-orders for new yeah for new stuff. that's like, true uh actually next friday they're putting up rivals of ether 
mm-hmm. um, which I'm going to grab. Um, and I certainly encourage any of our uh, listeners who are on the um, on the Discord to grab that too, because it'll be a great game for online multiplayer. Yeah, um, which is always nice. Uh, Rivals of Ether. I don't know if anyone's familiar with it. It's a it's basically a 16 bit take on Smash Brothers. Okay. Yeah. So it's like basically Smash Brothers, like distilled to its like basest elements, mm-hmm. with like all, with all the bombast and items and like crazy nonsense stripped out. Um, and it's 16 bit, and it's got really solid mechanics. Um, it's got uh, indie guest characters. It has Ori from the Ori and the Blind Forest, whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Series and Shovel Knight. Um, but the rest is just in unique. Um, proprietary characters, but it's really worth checking out, and I'm going to be grabbing it when they put it up next week. Um, yeah. And I'd love to be able to get a good online community together for it. Yeah, good stuff. All right, uh, continuing on, uh, the BitTrip series, uh, which has been on all sorts of platforms at this point, is coming to Switch uh, on Christmas Day from the sound of things for four ninety nine each. Uh, so there's how many games in there? One, two, three, four, five, six games. For four dollars ninety nine each, um, so those will be available on the eShop from Christmas Day. Um, no word on any sort of physical release as yet, but um, as with a lot of stuff like this, I'd be quite surprised if we didn't see a, at least a limited run release of this at some point. Yeah, I mean, you can physically get all of these games already, mm-hmm. um, but it's just um, like on the also on the PS4, you can get all like the limited run did a release of exactly this in one package, all six yeah. of these. Um, yeah. So that exists. Um, these are great games, um, and they're mm-hmm. perfect yeah. for the Switch, especially in handheld mode. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's exciting. These are re- these are really fun, experimental little games, mm-hmm. um, and I highly recommend all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've 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 only played a couple of them. I think I've played I've played Beat and Runner. I think I've not played many of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, they 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 they've got a lovely sort of lo-fi pixel art style, great music, really interesting mechanics, and like you say, really really cool experimental games. So, well worth a look. Uh, moving on, uh, Cuphead's DLC, The Delicious Last Course, has been delayed uh, from its previous window, which was out by the end of this year, and it's been delayed to 2021. Um, and basically, they they weren't happy with with how it was going. Um, due to sort of the challenges of working remotely and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, they've just pushed it back so they can make it as good as it will possibly be. So no specific date yet, but it's just going to be next year sometime. Yeah, and this is, of course, significant because this also is going to delay the physical release because they've said the physical release is going to include this. Yes. So so, so that's that's why this is important to me because, <laughs> God damn it, I want to own Cuphead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... Yep. but Ever since they promised a physical, I haven't, you know, I haven't committed because I knew it was coming. But. Yeah, yeah. Okay, continuing on. Um, is it wrong to try to shoot 'em up girls in a dungeon? Is now available for PS4 and PC in the West for free. I think the Switch version has had some delays um, due to um, some sort of eShop shenanigans, but it's it's certainly available on PS4 and PC for now. Uh, this is the the pixel art shoot 'em up uh, that was originally distributed as a pre-order bonus for the uh, Infinite Combat Danmachi game in Japan. Uh, but what they've done here is they've released it completely separately as a free download. So you can grab that right now on the relevant platforms for free, which is nice. Uh, I haven't actually got around to downloading and trying this yet, but it certainly looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, it really does. I haven't 
either. I, I don't know much about this this series other than it's cute. Um, yeah. I always, <laughs> I always, when I see stuff about it, I always mix it up with Konosuba, which I do know a lot about. Yes. But, uh, yeah, it's but, uh, it's a bit different from from Konosuba. It's 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 one of those shows that pe- uh, some people do describe as uh, isekai, but it's not really isekai. It's one of those one of those ones where um, there's an established world that runs by game conventions, but it's not someone getting sucked from the real world into it. So yeah, it's it's just a world that follows RPG conventions. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite an interesting setting. It's got some great characters um, and. Um, it's it's not as sort of silly and comedic as Connoisseur, it's a little bit more serious, but there's there's comedic elements to it and it's 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 a lot of fun. It's a series worth worth watching. And I think they're now on like the third series of the anime, so it's it's proven pretty popular uh, since its launch as well. So Yeah, good stuff. I will try and download that at some point and uh, give some thoughts on it or maybe do a quick video on it at some point. Yeah, I'd be interested uh, to see that. Yeah. Continuing on, uh, Re-Legend will finally launch in 2021. Uh, this was once um, part of the Square Enix Collective, uh, which was the program Square Enix did a while back, where they were sort of encouraging and helping to fund some indie projects. And this subsequently had some funding on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is now set to uh, show up on consoles and computers in spring of 2021. Um, it's already been out on Steam for a little while in early access form. Um, but yeah, this will this will be the full release in spring of next year. Um, I haven't followed much about this, but do you know much about this? Oh, I know a lot. Yeah, I'm I'm a backer. I backed this like hard. Oh, forward. nice. Okay, tell tell me more then. Yeah, tell me more. yeah. So this is basically Harvest Moon plus Pokemon. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see um, why you'd be into that. <laughs> yeah. So it's got like the the Animal Crossing Harvest Moon like village sim. Like you have a a house and a little farm, but also. Um, it's an action RPG with collectible, trainable monsters that evolve along different like pathways. Um, Sweet. So yeah, it's a lot of things I love in one package with a, a really cute, um, like pastel-y anime chibi aesthetic. Um, the monsters are just so cute. Uh, <laughs> like, I, yeah, it's just I love action RPGs. I love monster collecting. It's just everything about this is exciting to me also it's a i think it's a fairly ambitious indie project um you know so i really like to support it as well just based on that fact um yeah i don't know i just like it aesthetically it's pleasing to me it has a really sweet friendly kind of feel to it i haven't played like the early access version i didn't back it for that much but yeah there's been talk of potentially getting a publisher for physical for it so it's just um, every now and then uh, you see an indie game that like obviously I don't want to disparage indie games I, I worship them like I don't know I have like a hundred and sixty Switch games and probably like thirty of them are not indie games at, the, <laughs> at this point like I love indie games but every now and then you get a unique indie game that looks like a second party or first party game right like yeah, this yeah. this game to me looks like something that the Story of Seasons Studio would have put out. Like from yeah, a, from yeah. a from a sheer level of like production quality, it looks like a a first party game, and, yeah. and so it's really like to me, I'm like, wow, I really got to follow this. These guys are really bringing an A game to this production, and yeah. So hopefully it's not garbage, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it looks delightful. 
and I yeah. like cute, cute monsters. And like, I like literally like every, if you were a backer, they would actually send surveys out once a month for a while of like, here's four monster designs we're trying to incorporate into the game, like vote. And like, so like the community, mm-hmm. the community helped shape like the monster roster and stuff. Um, and just like everyone was like, it was like impossible to decide every month because they were all just like so cute and clever. <laughs> yeah. Very exciting. This game is going to be a lot of fun, hopefully. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, full version of that will be out in spring 2021, or if you want to try the early access version, you can find that on Steam now. Okay, moving on. Uh, we've got news of a, a new studio called Bokeh, uh I think I say pronounce it, Game Studio Incorporated, uh, which uh, is formed uh, of Keichiro Toyama, who is the creator of Silent Hill, Siren, and Gravity Rush, uh, along with Kazunobu Sato and Junior Okura. Um, who were also at Sony Japan Studio with Toyama. Um, yeah, so this is a new studio uh, built from some people who I think have kind of been stifled by Sony over the course of the last few years, um, particularly when we bear in mind sort of how the abysmal treatment that Sony gave Gravity Rush to. Um, so uh, Toyama left in August the 13th and then Sato and Okura followed them uh, shortly afterwards. So uh, Toyama has issued a a statement on the studio's establishment now where he says, uh, looking back at my inner self, nothing has really changed at all since day one when I set foot in this industry. Firstly, I want players to enjoy games built from ideas with originality. And secondly, I want to enjoy making those games. This is all there was to it. Thankfully, it was possible for myself and the team to develop and release many games. However, the gaming industry has rapidly grown globally and is still drastically changing all the time. Day by day, living in these times, I felt the need for a substantial change to pursue my own ambitions. This is why I've decided to become independent. So, yeah, I, I, I think this this is going to be really good for them because, as several people have pointed out recently, Sony, the Sony of today is pretty much an American company at this yes. point. Yeah. Um, Do you remember the, when first party Sony was like Ape Escape? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um I, I i think the the sony of today is sort of fundamentally incompatible with a lot of these japanese creators and and like i say and sony themselves show very little interest in um some really really good games that that they put out as well like to- toyama is is a particularly gifted creator i think with stuff like gravity rush and siren and so on mm-hmm. um so yeah, it's it's going to be exciting to see uh, what they come up with, and I think it's going to be really good for them. So yeah, um, thumbs up to them for going it alone, and uh, I'll be I'll be happy to support whatever they're doing. I think. Yeah, the video for this like reveal was amazing because it's yeah. just like like three good friends enjoy a drink, and they're just they're just like the, these three affable Japanese men like laughing and talking about game design, and they, they <laughs> they're smiling and it's also pleasant, and then like the camera pans around to like what they're working on, and it's just black and white sketches of like otherworldly horrors. <laughs> they're all just like laughing and like having a good time and smiling and grinning at each other and then like the camera zooms down to the desk and it's just like a disembodied torso with like (laughs) bloated maggots like flying out of it with like jaws and like 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 spider legs like emerging from like a woman's chest like like not 
it's like oh like like <laughs> i know i've said this before talking about my like love of film but like hard people really are just the friendliest most lovable <laughs> people yeah for sure for sure so yeah, looking forward to seeing what they're up to. They they haven't really said anything yet as as to what they're working on, but uh, given their background, you can probably uh, and that video, you can probably uh, imagine some of the things that they might be wanting to pursue. So yeah, looking forward to that for sure. Okay, uh, next piece of news uh, is a new quote Neptunia game on the way, uh, which is Neptunia Reverse for PlayStation Five. This is coming in twenty twenty one. This was. Um, this was originally called Go 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 Jigen Game Neptune Reverse in Japan and is due out on December the 17th in Japan. Uh, and it's basically uh, another updated and enhanced version of the first Neptunia game. Um, so it's, it's making use of uh, the newer engines that they've been using. You can now use four characters in battle instead of three. Um, there's an arrange mode where there's 20 characters you can choose from right from the beginning of the game rather than having predefined um, party lineups based on the story. There's a fishing mini game. Um, yeah, so it sounds like they've, they've added a fair bit to uh, Rebirth 1. And the nice thing about this for Europeans as well is that uh, Rebirth 1 never got a physical release over here on Vita. Uh, Rebirth oh. 2 and 3 did, but the first one didn't. So this will be an opportunity for Europeans to own a physical copy of uh a version of the first neptunia game um i really hope they do this for two and three as well um i never yeah. got a chance to grab rebirth two and three and i don't mm -hmm. really feel like going back and getting them on the vita right now especially for the prices they're demanding on the secondhand market so yeah but the, the thing with rebirth two and three is because because from Mar if, because neptunia mark two and neptunia victory were already kind of in considerably enhanced over the first neptunia game the the sort of enhancements to the vita versions were considerably less than rebirth one rebirth one is a complete rebuild of the first game using a completely different engine whereas rebirth two and three are basically just sort of enhanced ports of the um the ps3 versions um whereas if they do uh reverse two and reverse three this this will presumably be a nice jump forward for those ones as well so yeah ho hopefully we see those as well and that might actually get me to buy a ps5 so <laughs> so you can run so you can run a game on it that looks like it was for the ps4 yep, exactly <laughs> exactly exactly gotta love it all right uh moving on um king of fighters 15 is on the way uh and we've got an announcement of an announcement there's a trailer coming on january the 7th uh, and there's a short teaser trailer now so um yeah that's about all know. there I'm is to say at the minute but uh <laughs> I, i'm just an snk head everyone knows so i had to throw that in there it's exciting yeah yeah yeah, so they've um, they've shown a few sort of character sketches up until now and this brief teaser trailer, uh, but uh, that's about it. The other thing they've said is that teams will be composed a bit differently in King of Fighters 15, but they don't really say what that means. So, like I say, li very limited information on that, but check back on January the 7th of 2021 uh, for the full reveal trailer. Okay, uh, next up, uh, Swery 65's upcoming game, The Good Life, uh, will be released in summer 2021, and he's got a publisher now uh, called The Irregular Corporation, who I haven't heard of before, but uh, yeah, he, he certainly seemed uh, very pleased on Twitter to actually have a, a publisher for this now as well. So if you're not familiar with this, this is a game where um, 
you play a a new york journalist who moves to a sort of rural english town uh and you explore and you interact with the inhabitants and you take photographs and all that sort of thing so this this sounds like potentially a really interesting game and it almost certainly has uh that trademark sweary weirdness in there somewhere uh so yeah i've been looking forward to this uh this was a kickstarter project at one point i didn't actually back this one on kickstarter but um certainly interested to see how this ends up you can turn into a cat yes 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 among other things like i say sweary weirdness <laughs> uh couple of other things coming up uh persona 5 strikers uh which is the game formerly known as persona 5 scramble is coming west for playstation 4 switch and pc on february the 23rd um yeah this this was actually spotted a little bit early uh prior to atlas officially announcing it but uh there, there was an unlisted youtube video that people managed to track down uh and this is the omega force developed action rpg uh in the series so uh, persona warriors if you will uh, looks yeah. like a lot of fun. A lot of people were, were thinking that this wasn't going to get localized, and I don't know why. Because come on, <laughs> Persona Five, like seriously? <laughs> yeah, I, there's no question with with SMD games anymore. Yeah, exactly. Or Omega Force developed games anymore. Yeah, like silly. Yeah, but anyway, um, this is set to come out for PS4, Switch, and PC on February the 23rd. Uh, from the look of things, gotta play the uh, shit out of it. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Persona plus Muso. That is going to be a lot of fun. I don't know. I, I, God knows. I don't know how. I haven't read much about the Japanese version. How it plays. Like, if the monster collecting elements are entwined with the Muso in any way, I don't know how that works. But it could I be. See, my... I can. I, I can see that working. It would probably sort of take the place of like weapon collecting and stuff, wouldn't it? Yeah. I imagine. Yeah, probably. Probably in a similar sense, but that would really just scratch a number of itches. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. So, I'm not long to wait for that now. So that's good. Uh, next up, um, you sent me an excited message the other night about a shoot 'em up called Habroxia Two. Um, and it looks like they're doing a limited physical release uh, via Play Asia. This is uh, East Asia software putting this out as well. And they are, I don't know if they're actually related to Play Asia or if they're just sort of working closely with them. Um, but yeah, Play Asia is putting out uh, a limited edition of East Asia Soft's shooter, Habroxia 2, which looks really cool because it's sort of a combination of side scrolling, horizontally scrolling, and uh, vertically scrolling shoots them up as well. Um, with some some lovely art, some great music, lots of exploding things, um, a touch of a touch of Vanguard in there, which in those vertically scrolling segments, which uh, which pleased me quite a bit because Vanguard's cool. Yeah, I just I'd never this really caught me by surprise. I had gotten like the update from PlayAsia, like we're going to start taking pre-orders for this, and it's two, so there's a one out there, but I had never yeah. heard of the first one. Um, and so I watch this footage and I'm like, A, graphically, it super reminds me of the Intercreate's um, like retro plus Blaster Master games. Yes. Like yes. it's got a, like a like a limited but not super limited color palette, like a limited but not super limited resolution. Like mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a specific type of like 16-bit, 8-bit hybrid that never actually existed in the industry. It's it's probably <laughs> closest closest to PC engine, isn't it? I think very much so, very mm. much so. 
And I just I love the look of it. And it's interesting because uh, obviously we love shoot 'em ups around here, but it, it seems like it's going to have some progressive elements, like a ton of upgrades, it says. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a new game plus to carry like your upgrades and stuff over to like your next runs so it's it's got some really interesting mechanical hiccups in there besides just being what appears to be a solid shooter um a ton of power-ups um i forget what the number was but it was like a lot of different power-ups it says there's six, 64 persistent chip upgrades yeah so like goodness knows what that means um branching mm. paths in the levels like uh, Darius yeah. style, which is always really cool. So like, there's a lot of stuff about this game really appealed to me. So I was really surprised I'd never heard of the original. But um, I think this pre-order is going to be up for the, the next couple weeks. And it's a really nice package. Uh, comes with the soundtrack um, in a, on disc, which is really mm -hmm. cool. So yeah. I'm definitely going to be jumping on board with this. It's cheap as well. Um, for for like a limited edition of a shooter, this is cheap. It's twenty seven pound twenty three in English money, uh, which is a bargain. I might have to grab that. Yeah, Play um, Asia's limited edition releases are always very affordable. Um, mm -hmm. I got. Um, I haven't gotten it yet. It's it's going to start shipping soon. It was called Pawarumi. Have you heard of this one? It's a it's a vertical shoot 'em up that has a like a like an Aztec theme. It's really cool okay. looking. Yeah. Um, and I had pre-ordered this from them as well. And it was basically the same. Um, so it was $34.99 US dollars. And it's a, a little boxed set that includes the soundtrack physically. Like um, this is something they do pretty often. Um, yeah. I, I really yeah. like a lot of their releases. Uh, it also needs to be said that this is uh, available. going to be available in the Vita as well. So like if you're yeah. one of those people who wants to collect... Um, every last Vita game you can. This is getting a nice physical pressing on the Vita. Yeah, yeah. Um, East Asia Soft and uh, Play Asia seem to be some of the last people who have got stock of Vita cartridges. So I, I think sort of they are going to be the ones who released the last Vita game. I think whenever that is. So yeah, yeah keep an eye out for that if you are that kind of collector. Yeah, this this looks cool. I might have to might have to order that. Um, I've I've got some of East Asia Soft's other limited editions as well. I've got their um, uh, what's it called, Moero um, Crystal and sure. uh, Murder by Numbers as well. And those those are really nice limited editions. Those are a bit more expensive because they come with a bit more stuff. They come with like art book and other bits and bobs as well. But yeah, they're, they're very affordable, good quality. Um, take a while to get to you, um, but like I'm still waiting on my seabed from them as well. But uh, again, with with any of this sort of thing, I I just I just wait for it, and when it shows up, it shows up. So well, I was going to say, not like, we, not like we ever have a shortage of shit to play. Exactly. When I was when I was like seventeen, it would have bothered me, but like now, it's like I never. I have more games I could ever play. So like, yeah. To me, to me, games launch when they show up at my door. I don't actually yep. care when games launch. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because like, I mean, I don't give a shit about online play for the most part, and uh, the online discourse surrounding games is generally pretty toxic around the uh, launch date. Anyway, so yeah best to best to let all that hype die down and then take it on your own terms as we have often argued mm -hmm. anyway uh that is all the news that we've got listed for the minute is there anything else you want to bring up before we move on no i think that's just about everything cool all right let's leave that there for a minute then and we'll come back and talk about what we've been playing recently so we'll see you in a moment Welcome back. For our second segment, we're going to talk about what we've been playing recently. So, what have you been up to, Chris? 
Uh, I think the game today that I would like to pay the most lip service to is Xeno Crisis. Already? Um, yep. Yeah, so I was I was reminded of my love of Xeno Crisis when you uh, I was watching your uh, fresh video you put up about um, Tanglewood. Uh, yes. <laughs> because uh, Tanglewood and Xeno Crisis are featured together on a paired cartridge for the Evercade. And... Um, and and, and the, I was watching your video and really enjoying it, and and you kept mentioning how like it was really important to you to, to, to dedicate a video highlighting Tanglewood, because um, you feel like Xeno Crisis is going to be getting the lion's share of the attention on that part. <laughs> and the whole time I'm like, uh huh, uh huh, because Xeno Crisis <laughs> is fucking amazing. <laughs> oh, it is, it is absolutely not denying that. But um, uh, yeah, I wanted to make sure Tanglewood got some love. Never, <laughs> never in the history of gaming have there been two diametrically opposed games so radically diametrically <laughs> opposed featured on the same cartridge. Yes. Uh, Tanglewood is this like beautiful, soft-spoken game full of like reactive ambient sound and like minimized violence and thoughtful approaches to problem solving. <laughs> Where Xeno Crisis is the most balls to the wall, pure <laughs> arcade experience, like humanly possible. Um, so yeah, Xeno Crisis is a, uh, a game developed by Bitmap Bureau. Um, Bitmap Bureau um, is a independent studio, kind of dedicated to making old school games. Uh, and the most important thing about Xeno Crisis is it was natively developed for the Genesis, mm -hmm. the Mega Drive. Um, so it is, in essence, a 16-bit game. Uh, not not a not a retro plus independent game such as what we were talking about with Abraxia or stuff like Shovel Knight or or the Bloodstained spin-off games, but it is literally a 16-bit game developed to run on the Mega Drive to the point where you can purchase a Mega Drive cartridge of it. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I've been playing it primarily on the Switch and Evercade, but um, this thing is available everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I don't just mean PS4, Switch, and Xbox. I, I don't just mean Mac, Linux, and PC. I mean the Mega Drive, the Dreamcast... <laughs> and, the, and the Neo Geo, <laughs> so, yes. so, so uh, it's quite it's quite amazing. Um, and you guys may remember Bitmap Bureau. We've mentioned them on the podcast before because these are also the people behind Battle Axe, which was a game oh, yes. that was on yeah, yeah, Kickstarter yeah. a little while ago that I just like screamed about because um, mm -hmm. it's uh, the pixel artist by now. I'm going to butcher his name. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it's, uh, this. Hank Nieborg, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hank, Hank Nieborg, who um, we've mentioned here many times as well because he's kind of one of the modern luminaries of pixel art. Um, he works, mm -hmm. he did a lot of work with Way Forward, uh, Contra 4, uh, Shantae, Pirate's Curse, and Risty's Revenge, Mighty Switch Force. Yeah. Um, He's just amazing at what he does, um, and his work has a lot of personality. Um, so pretty much any time he touches anything, I get hyper excited, um, and mm -hmm. it just—it's just fantastic. Uh, the soundtrack is by a fellow who goes by Savage Regime, um, and it is the crunchiest FM, <laughs> like heavy metal, like <laughs> like I, I can't eat, like you, it must be listened to to be to be. Fully appreciated, absolutely amazing, and it's just a classic balls to the wall twin stick shooter. Um, 
more in the tradition of Smash TV than anything else because it involves rooms and you transition room to room. Um, yeah. the, the layout of the rooms is generated randomly um, every time you start again, but uh, it needs to be pointed out that this is not in any way like a modern indie roguelike, right? There's no yeah, roguelike yeah. elements. There's no collection of items. There's no, besides the layout of the stage is nothing is like randomly generated. Um, you don't, you lose everything when you die, but only in the sense that it's a it's a pure arcade experience. Um, there's no progressive carryover of upgrades to make each run different. This is a pure arcade game in the sense that this could have been in an arcade. Um, you just play as far as you can get with the lives and continues you have available to you. And if you you don't beat the game, you you start over again and keep trying till you get better skill-wise. There's no progressive updates, upgrades. Um, you do get small upgrades in between each stage uh, with a currency you earn through the levels, which are these little dog tags. Mm -hmm. um, but they're pretty stingy, um, and you've got to be really judicious when you make those choices. Um, you can probably only afford maybe two or three upgrades between each stage so you've got to really make a choice do you want uh, better shot power better shot better movement speed um you really you, when you shape your character in between stages like you can't have it all um so there's a lot of choices to be made there based on your play style which i really appreciated um there's just a lot going on here from a design perspective that i really think elevates this game above other games of a similar uh, of a similar genre. Uh, it's got a really satisfying dodge roll mechanic um, that just yep. feels heavy and right. Um, and another thing that I thought was really cool that kind of made it feel slightly different from a lot of like overhead shooting style games that I've talked about here in the past, stuff like um, like the Neo Geo Shock Troopers games, which are games I really love, is um, yeah. even, even your main shot in Xeno Crisis has limited ammo. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Now, now when I first encountered this, I thought, well, "This is awful! Like, why would I want? <laughs> why, why would I want my main weakest shot to have limited ammo?" But when I started thinking about it from a design perspective, what I realized was, it, it forces you to stay mobile constantly. Um, in a game like this, if your main shot has unlimited ammo, it's very easy to find like a wall or a corner where the enemies aren't walking. And um, you can stay cozy in that corner and just kind of like rotate and clear a room out. Um, yeah. Because the ammo is limited in Xeno Crisis, what happens is when your ammo runs out, an ammo box will spawn somewhere in the room. So you're never out of ammo, right? You're never mm -hmm. hard up for ammunition. But where that box spawns is going to be pretty random. So it forces you, if you're in a cozy, safe spot that you've discovered, once you run out of ammo, you've got to roll around, use your knife melee attack to get to that ammo box to be able to shoot again. So it's constantly forcing you to stay mobile, stay in the action, and like not be complacent and try to trick the game with like safe spots. Um, which I, I thought was really smart, like a really smart yeah. design, design principle. Um, there's great score hunting mechanics. Um, you have a melee attack. If you if you let go of your uh, your rapid fire button and tap when you're near an enemy, you'll do a melee attack with a knife, just like a metal slug. Um, but any enemy you kill with melee attack is double points. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis there to uh, to try to experiment with that when you can to try to get your scores up. Um, there's classic weapon upgrades, flamethrower, rocket launcher. There's a really cool rebound shot that bounces off the walls. 
it's just a good feeling, tight and beautifully made classic arcade twin stick experience, and I love everything about it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with all that. I've, I've not spent a ton of time with it yet, but I, I have really enjoyed what I've played so far. But uh, yeah, like like you say, complete opposite to Tanglewood, uh, which is uh, <laughs> a nice a nice quiet game about a fox being sad. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's yeah. wonderful. Tanglewood's wonderful. It's oh, just, I love Tanglewood. Yeah, it's just super humorous to me that they're on the same cart together because it's yeah. like the quiet guy you knew in high, in high school and the guy that made fun of him together in, in one <laughs> in one package. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yes, I, I will be spending some more time with that uh, shortly because I, I, I think I'm due to because uh, I'm I'm sort of writing uh, writing through the Evercade library, going through in order on car on uh, in cartridge order at the moment. So I think I'm due to write about Xeno Crisis soon. So I'm yeah, need to yeah. Spend some time with that beforehand. Yeah, I'll be and then interested. there will be a there will be a, a video at some point as well. So yeah good stuff good stuff that's a great game and uh yeah a, a, a real selling point for the evercade for some people as well so yeah and and it needs to be pointed out too that the developers are the nicest people mm -hmm. like i i wrote them an email i had some questions and um you know i just wanted to, to tell them how much i appreciated their work they they responded personally wrote back to me thanked me for buying the game on two different platforms <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're just just really really personable delightful people and um you know that really amps up my desire to continue to support them and whatever they do yeah definitely definitely it's uh yeah it's it's nice when developers like that who who have a bit of a success story they manage to sort of remain humble and modest about what they've done as well yeah it's, that's always really nice to see cool anything else you've been up to uh yeah i mean i know around here we um we take a lot of time to attempt to not talk about like big first party games that are super popular we try to kind of focus on smaller stuff but um it's like two years removed from launch so i feel like it's okay if i spend a little time talking about mario and rabbit's kingdom battle i think that's absolutely fine i don't think that was a particularly <laughs> mainstream game in the first place so yeah, it was ubisoft <laughs> and nintendo together right i guess pretty but uh i you know one i feel like the thing that breaks our, our normal emphasis to talk about small games is we always want to talk about games that are super interesting from a design perspective mm, and uh, yeah. i recently finally picked up a copy of this because i had been holding out for a while to see if there would be a complete edition with the donkey kong dlc together on the cart uh, and yep. then when i found out that the the pal region did get a complete edition but then the pal region's complete edition was just the regular game with a code card in the box Oh. I was like, we're never gonna get better. So the 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 you know the original one went, keeps going on sale for like twenty bucks or less in the states. So I was like, I've been wanting to play this now for two years. I'm done waiting. I'm gonna grab this. Uh, and boy, am I glad I did! Wow, mm, this game is yeah. good. I've um, heard this is great. Is is isn't this the one that's like basically XCOM but Mario? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a dream for me. I mean, I, I've wanted this game for ever since I could remember. It's a turn, it's a grid-based, turn-based tactical RPG with Mario characters. Now, <laughs> now I don't love the Rabbids. It would make my life complete if the Rabbids weren't in there and it was just Mario Kingdom Battle. But mm -hmm. um, it's a compromise I'm willing to make just because the, the game is incredible. Um, yeah. So it's a turn-based, grid-based strategy RPG 
with Mario characters and cover mechanics because it's all gun based. Um, you get like little Mega Man, like goofy toy looking guns and, and you shoot at each other over destructible cover. Um, but it's designed so cleverly because um, I think any studio really could have taken the Mario universe cartoonied it up and made a tactical turn-based Mario RPG, right? It's possible. But yeah. um, as the history of Mario RPGs has taught us through the original one, um, Paper Mario, and, and the Mario and Luigi series, it's never enough to just take Mario and skin a classic genre with Mario. You always mm-hmm. have to take things that are uniquely Mario and infuse the gameplay with something that is distinctly of Mario. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? It's it's not yeah, enough yeah. to just be a Mario turn-based RPG. You've you've got to have Mario hallmark elements in there that aren't just visual and characters, but also mechanically distinctly Mario-esque things. Um, and the way they've done this in Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle is just amazing. So like one of the one of the things you can do in this game, which is kind of different from other tactical RPGs I've played, is if you, in the movement phase, if you run a character into the same square as another character, they will pick that character up and throw them uh, across <laughs> the stage. So you can cover like incredible amounts of ground this way. But like with Mario, if you pick Mario up and throw him, you can throw him onto a block that another enemy's in and he'll jump on their head. Like Mario, <laughs> Mario style. So just yeah. little stuff like this that feels so distinctly Mario into what is a very solid, fun, kind of entry-level My First Tactical RPG. Um, I, it's just so thoughtfully made, and I love everything about it. It's also a really great example of something we always talk about on, uh, on this cast, which is um, it's got a very specific crafted toy-like aesthetic where when you yeah. play every it's not interested in looking like it's not a video game mm-hmm. like the stages are crafted in a very mario way with everything being like cubes and blocks and being having a, a toy-like sheen to them like it doesn't look like a world that exists it looks like mario's world where everything is just a, a rounded soft toy um but because it's a tactical RPG, it's that visual style extrapolated to a three quarters or overhead view. Um, and it just feels like you're running around in like a Mario diorama that somebody made. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. So like if you don't have this game on your Switch, please get it. I, it's, it's so cool. It's so cool. And I'm really disappointed with myself that i took so long to get my hands on it because i'm really <laughs> well, loving every I, I, minute of it i understand i mean you do want a, a complete edition where possible don't you so yeah it's just a shame that uh, it doesn't look like one exists in quite the form we want it but uh well did you but, pick up the dlc as well um you know i got the game so cheaply that i do plan on getting the dlc um right now the dlc goes for more than i paid for the game <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> um, but but um, I'll keep an eye out for sales. Um, I'm also not really interested in getting it. You know, where I sit with DLC, especially um, if it's not in a completed package, uh, like a special re-release, um, it doesn't make sense for me to invest money in the DLC until I've exhausted the content of the original game. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. so, especially because in this case it's like a, it's like a separate campaign i think isn't it so yeah yeah so so if i beat the game and i find i'm wanting more i will invest in the dlc but mm-hmm. you know the likelihood of me actually beating the game is pretty low so because too many games too little time so <laughs> um you know i've already kind of moved on to something else since since playing this a lot but um i may invest in it one day um who knows? Maybe there'll be a complete edition on whatever next Switch comes out because Nintendo's been doing shit like that a lot. But yeah, um, yeah it, it just I can't recommend this enough, especially since it can be gotten for a song. This game, like most Ubisoft published games, is on sale constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's me. That's that's kind of what I've been into lately. Um, kind of a nice mix of stuff. Cool. All right. Well, what have I been up to? Um, I have been, of course, continuing with my Atelier Mega feature over on MobileGame.net. We're just starting uh, getting into writing about Atelier Lulu right now. Um, and because I'm sort of playing slightly ahead of schedule, uh, just to make sure that I, I don't catch up with myself, um, I've uh, I've just started Atelier Aisha, which I'm now not entirely convinced I'm pronouncing correctly because the Japanese voiceover pronounces her name Asha. But I think they might spell it differently as well. So mm. it's either called Atelier Aisha or Atelier Asha. Um, depending on who you talk to. But uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this because this is the first entry in the Dusk series of Atelier, uh, which I know uh, a lot of long-standing fans of the series, um, it, it's their favourite sub-series for various reasons. Um, so it's uh, got quite a different atmosphere to the Arland games. The Arland games are sort of very very brightly coloured and, and cheerful and everything like that. The Dusk games, as you might expect from the name, are they're a little bit more downbeat. Um, it's I wouldn't call it a ruined world necessarily, but it's 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 a world where there's there's something wrong and you can't quite put your finger on what's wrong, but there's something slightly wrong. Uh, with with the world there's this sort of slight green tinge to everything and like the sky, the skies are always clouded over and that sort of thing and everyone is sort of going about their business sort of slightly slightly tired of life and that sort of thing so having a sort of energetic atelier protagonist in the middle of all that is a, is a nice contrast it's my understanding that that gets worse as the series progresses um yes I, I think the whole point of the dusk trilogy from what i understand was that it was always meant to be not a post-apocalyptic take on um atelier but but a a currently occurring apocalypse take yes on, on atelier. yes yes judging, judging from what i've seen so far I'd, I'd say that 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 is probably accurate i mean there's been no signs of sort of an apocalypse happening uh, aside from, but there is this very definite feeling that something is absolutely not right with the world and um yeah i i think sort of the, the core mystery at the heart of atelier aisha is, uh, is 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 key to that is the, the the main sort of um objective in this game is that aisha's sister has gone missing uh, she got spirited away from the nearby ruins and uh, you are investigating how how that happened and um whether or not it's possible to get her back or not and as you as you explore the world you start finding other places where this similar phenomenon has happened and there's sort of spooky stuff going on and all that sort of thing but yeah it's it, it's cool um because it's part of a new series they've sort of completely revamped the mechanics from the uh Arlen series so the combat system is quite different there's quite a strong emphasis on positioning in combat um so what happens in this is that um 
the uh, when you're fighting in combat there's sort of a, a triangle of positions that you can put your characters around the enemies and depending on if they're standing together or opposite each other or that sort of thing they can sometimes interact with each other during combat so they can do like follow-up attacks or strike enemies in the back and that sort of thing love stuff like that yeah, so, so there's some really interesting new things to consider in that. Like some of their special moves will cause them to shift position and that sort of thing, so you need to bear that in mind. Um, there's the the sort of charge up and support attack system that uh, was gradually developed over the course of the Ireland series. Uh, lots of items to use. The, the alchemy system is um, very different. It's... Um, how do you describe it? It's almost, almost like a card game in this one, Ooh. in that... Um, in the each each ingredient has a value, uh, and you have a you have a maximum value of stuff that you c you can put into your uh, your synthesis, which is depend which is dependent on your alchemy level. And you basically play each of your ingredients in turn, and each of those ingredients has um, some sort of skills that you put in this stockyard in the middle, which then affects the stuff you put in afterwards. So there's a very strong emphasis on sort of playing stuff in the right order and thinking about um, thinking about the way these different ingredients will interact with each other and the effect that will have on the final product. So, yeah, it's really interesting. It's very different to how the Ireland series did things. And um, it's one of those things that sort of initially looks quite daunting because when you first start playing the game, it does all that automatically for you and you're sort of like, what, what the hell's going on? But then once you level up a bit, it then sort of passes control over to you and gives you gives you some sort of suggestions as you, to what you might want to try. And over time, you'll gradually get to grips with that. So that's been really interesting so far. Um, and the characters are really fun as well. So, um, yeah, liking that a lot so far. I'm not that far into it so far, but uh, what I've played so far has been a lot of fun. Um, as I say, this is a these three games are sort of a long-standing favorite of atelier fans particularly esh and logie which is the second one um so yeah looking forward to exploring those and uh atelier shally i think is the one where they abandoned the time limit completely as well woo so that woo so that one will probably be of particular interest to you but um plus the girls atelier are adorable <laughs> <laughs> the shally girls are like oh god i can't even <laughs> i remember when the I remember when the uh, the promotional materials for for Shally first came out. That was like, there's two Shallies. Like that's the whole point. Like two girls whose name yeah. is both Shally, um, and they're both a different type. That is a specific type I like. <laughs> like <laughs> oh, excellent! Yeah, um, yeah. There's, there's some great characters in uh, Aisha so far as well. So we've got Wilbel the Witch, who I believe is like the one character who sort of recurs in all three installments. I think she, she's legendarily like the yeah. character everyone loves. Yeah, so she's like a kid in this one who's convinced that she's going to be the world's, or the, she's convinced that she is the world's greatest witch. Uh, but obviously, she's sort of just a kid at the, at the time, so that's that's quite amusing. Uh, Aisha herself is is uh, quite entertaining. She's she's sort of. Um, kind of a step back from the sort of the more energetic protagonists that there were in um the later Ireland game so she's 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 sort of quite gentle and a bit bewildered by everything that's going on but uh that's uh, that's that's a nice fit for the tone that the game's going for uh there's uh Regina who is lovely she's uh, she's a prospector with a big pickaxe and some formidable ab muscles and uh yeah I love her <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah there will, there will be more on that on mario gamer in the near future uh, like i say we're going to write a bit about atelier ludo first because i uh, just finished that and had a lot of fun with it uh, that was a really good game in the end um so lots to talk about with that um yeah so that's sort of the, the big thing i've been playing at the moment um aside from that uh, just recently um i know you're not necessarily going to like this but i've been playing a lot of atari Lynx games <laughs> <laughs> yeah listen listen uh, both game both of the atari Lynx collections on the evercade each had one game that i liked enough to justify the purchase anyway so okay, like it's atari enough. Lynx collection 2 is an atari Lynx collection 2 it's chips challenge yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there doesn't need to be anything else yeah so um so yeah the the, the two atari links collections for evercade uh, released very recently so the first one is uh, a compilation put together by um a company which is mostly one dude i think called uh, songbird productions who has been working on new stuff for old hardware since about 2000 so he's been making new Atari Lynx and Atari Jaguar games since, well, since sort of not that long after the Lynx stopped being current, I guess. Uh, but he's been sort of almost single-handedly keeping it alive. He's done a combination of uh, creating new stuff and uh, picking up licenses for old stuff. So the Atari Lynx Collection 1 includes some of his original stuff. Uh, as well as some of the stuff that he picked up the rights for so there's stuff like scrapyard dog and super um super asteroids and super missile command were out back in the day along with uh ishido the way of stones i think that, that might have been ubisoft thinking about it originally um it seems like an ubisoft thing yeah um it's a particularly particularly sort of 16-bit home computer ubisoft yeah um yeah, so so there's there's like a really interesting mix of of strange strange and intriguing games on this first collection, and then the second collection is uh, sort of the epics classics, which are sort of uh, most of the um, when you talk to people who are familiar with the Atari Lynx, most of the the games that people will tend to highlight are on that second collection. Yeah, so there's the stuff like Blue apps. Lightning, there's Checkered Flag, there's Chips Challenge, Gates of Zendikar, Electrocop, uh, all that sort of thing. So, um. Yeah, I've, I've been spending a time, spending quite a lot of time with with all sorts of, of different games on here. I really like um, Ishido, actually. Yeah, that's um, a good one. That that's I just mentioned. One. That's that's yeah. a, a really interesting puzzle game. That's um, it's ba it, it, it it positions itself as like an ancient game from the mysterious Far East and that, but it's it's not at all. It was completely originally invented for the video game, and they just decided to pretend that it was an ancient mystic Chinese game. Um, but it's it's based on uh putting colored tiles down on a grid and um in order to play uh you have to match a tile either by symbol or by color when you place it next to it and then um the more tiles that you successfully place on the board the more points you get and the more tiles that you can match simultaneously the more points you get as well so if you can do a four-way match at some point which requires you to match two of the surrounding tiles by color and two of them by symbol then you'll get much more points than you would if you're just matching one so it's a really interesting sort of um strategic game that's nice to sort of chill out with it's a good sort of sit in front of the telly and and play something while you're watching something else kind of game uh which uh, a lot of the links games fall into that category but this is it's a really nice chilled out game that i've had a lot of fun with i did like um, that one a lot i also like that one where it's like 
the puzzle game where you like connect the tubes. Oh yeah, uh, loops. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, that's that. That's a fun one. That's um, that's kind of based on the mechanics of um, Rampart, the arcade game Rampart, uh, okay. where you have to rebuild the rebuild the castles. Um, but it's built more as a straight puzzle game than a um, a sort of combination of puzzle and action like Rampart was. So there's several different ways to play in that one. Uh, so there's one where you just have to you just have to build loops using these uh, sections of pipe that you're given and make a complete um, a complete continuous shape with that. Um, then there's an incredibly stressful mode where it gives you a, a shape at the beginning and then it just removes bits of it and then it gives you quite a tight time limit and the pieces you need to fill in those gaps and for some reason that is one of the most stressful puzzle games i've ever played <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i've tried that mode yet yeah I, I i can't remember the name of it offhand but yeah i just tried it and like halfway through i was like oh my god this is this is <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure if it was a pleasant experience or not, but it was it was certainly an interesting feeling to have while playing a puzzle game. Just because sort of the the the, the kind of sensation you get while it's removing these pieces at the beginning, you, you like you look at it and you think I should remember what that is and then you almost immediately forget what was there. <laughs> You're just like Shit. I found the original mode fairly stressful, but because um you have a time limit to place each piece or you get dinged, yes. you get dinged with like a basically like a life, you have like lives. Yeah. And if you don't yeah. place the piece you have within that time limit, you lose one of those lives. So like you yeah. can't think about what you're doing. You have to like instinctively lay you gotta instinctively lay that pipe, son. So, so <laughs> don't think about it. Just lay that pipe. So, it's really it, it can be very stressful. But um, as we've often talked about with our love of puzzle games, like that's also lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I know I've been enjoying revisiting some games that I, I played a lot back in the day as well. So, like. Um, Checkered Flag is a really good example of a, a sort of really classic style vanishing point racer. Um, for you, I imagine it, it was it's probably a bit too sort of straight racy um, based on what we talked about last time we we, we covered vanishing point races. But uh, I I really like Checkered Flag for it's sort of solid, relatively no frills racing action, but it's it makes good use of the Lynx's capabilities. It That's offers a good challenge. The many of the games. I played on a lot of the on these collections, especially on the Epic, more so in the Epic's collection than the, the the collection one. But even the ones that I found mechanically were not worth playing as games are unbelievably impressive visually. Yeah, like yeah. I can't get over Checkered Flag. Yeah, like what it looks like, how it performs. Same with Blue Lightning. Like I just I can't fathom that these were handheld games when they came out. Mm -hmm. yeah blue, blue lightning is actually one i never played back in the day but i was always curious to but sort of playing it now i was actually still blown away by what it's doing because it's the if, for the unfamiliar the the links had hardware sprite scaling uh but it didn't have um sprite rotation uh and it didn't have um sort of any kind of true 3d capabilities other than what they programmed into software so seeing what Blue Lightning's doing, which is having sort of textured ground effects and um, sort of making making clever use of sprites to create the illusion of like undulations and canyons and that sort of thing, 
um the sense of altitude as you go up and down like as like you like ascend into the clouds and descend down towards the ground and that sort of thing it's really impressive like i was i was i'm blown away by that now let alone how i would have felt about it if i played it back in the day yeah yeah so um I just find myself, you know, I'm like in that constant struggle where I'm like, I'm not actually enjoying playing this as a game, but mm -hmm. I'm, but I'm enjoying like historically experiencing the technology and like how impressive this game is from a technical standpoint. Yeah. And that's kind yeah. of where I was with Checkered Flag as well. Like I was floored by it, but I wasn't having fun playing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, so. I think how you respond to these Lynx games in particular is, is going to partly depend on, how much sort of affinity you have for them in the first place so like i i the, these two cartridges are some of my favorite releases of the whole year because i grew up with the links and because i remember all these games and because i remember enjoying them and revisiting these has just been such a wonderful experience for me um if you didn't grow up with those in the first place then you don't necessarily have that attachment you can just judge them on sort of what you know of the time period and uh, your immediate reaction to them as well so yeah yeah uh, as i say it's everyone's kind of response to these games is going to vary a bit but uh yeah i've been having an absolute blast with these yeah and i mean they... and i have too in that historical way like because i never had mm -hmm. a links growing up so like this has having them has been great like to yeah. be able to experience these games and like the breadth of experience that was available in the links that i never really knew about mm -hmm. so like i mean there there were games where i was uh, floored by like i loved ishido i loved loops like we talked about um i love yeah. chips challenge like i found enough on each cart to really be thankful i had the carts like games i would come back to play again and again just like yeah. any of the carts on the evercade right there were games mm -hmm. i didn't like and there were games i liked that's the beauty of these massive collections existing yeah but then there were games that i played like scrapyard dog that i was like why would anyone voluntarily play this <laughs> like, like there, there are those games, but then there were games, you know, that uh, I understood and and can't wait to play again. Yeah, Scrapyard Dog's kind of interesting. I'm, uh, I've got an upcoming Evercade Eight Z video on this, but Scrapyard Dog is quite interesting because I remember back in the day when it was first released. I remember it getting panned in reviews. Uh, in the UK specifically, I remember the magazines I was reading, they reviewed Scrapyard Dog and they hated it. Um, doing some research and looking into it more recently, uh, it seems that it's actually quite a fondly regarded game. So like you look back at reviews from, there were some reviews from like IGN and GamePro and stuff, they all really liked it. Um, and so I've been sort of operating on the assumption that Scrapyard Dog is a pile of crap that no one would ever like whatsoever. And obviously you've had that reaction to it, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> but um i've actually found myself quite enjoying it and and uh exploring it and finding some of its secrets and stuff it's this is specifically one that i remember not picking up back in the day because of the bad reviews and revisiting it today i found a lot to like in there so yeah so i i found that one specifically quite interesting well, that's um, the beauty of the evercade right like a low low, exactly. low low cost of entry and access to stuff you never thought you'd ever get an opportunity to play yeah, and and low risk as well, like you say. I mean, there's 17 games on that Atari Lynx One collection, so like as long as you find at least one you have fun with, you've got your money's worth, really. So exactly. Um, from a slightly different perspective, Super Asteroids and Super Missile Command is one that I didn't pick up back in the day because I thought, oh well, I've played Super, I've played Asteroids and Missile Command on at least three different platforms by this point. Why would I want to play it on the Lynx as well? But I beat up Super Missile Command last last night, and that is super fun. Yeah because it's it's missile command but with an upgrade system 
um so like you at the end of every four stages you can spend the money that you earn from successful stages on upgrading your missiles and getting special weapons um and any game where there is a weapon just called armageddon uh, (laughs) (laughs) is something i have a lot of time for and indeed armageddon is you just launch a missile and just this massive explosion rocks the whole screen and clears everything off it it's it's a lot of fun um how many Super asteroids. Of asteroids are there on the Evercade now? Uh, there are at least three, three I think. Yeah. There's a 2600 one, the 7800 one, and the Lynx one now, I think. So, yeah, at least, at least three. Uh, and all slightly different, which is which is interesting. That's awesome. So, I love Asteroids. I grew up playing Asteroids. Like, I had a 2600 as a kid, and my mm-hmm. mom loved Asteroids. So, like, Asteroids was something, like, my mom and I would play together on, like, a Sunday afternoon. Like, they'd chase yeah. and score with each other. So, yeah. I have an extreme fondness for Asteroids. Mm. Asteroids is one of those games that brings up a point that I've I've mentioned a few times recently, which is um, unlike what we have today, where you you get a game on different platforms and it's the same on all those platforms. Asteroids is one of one of the strongest examples of different platforms having very different versions of the same game. So if you play the 2600 version of Asteroids, it's very different to the 7800 version. It's very different to the 5200 version. It's very different to the Lynx version. Um, they're all still recognizably Asteroids. They, it still has that sort of recognizable core mechanics, but they each have their own distinctive features um, that make make them all worth playing for one reason or another. One thing I do want to try that I've never had the opportunity to do is the the fifty two hundred version, which is on Atari Flashback Classics. There's a four player mode in that, a simultaneous oh, cool. four player mode, which just sounds like absolute chaos and that is a lot of fun. But uh, I never had the chance to try that yet. But uh, one day, one day when we can actually see real people again, yeah. So that's that's mostly what I've been spending my time with. Um, so those those Lynx carts have barely left my Evercade since I got them. So I've been having a lot of fun with them. Uh, Can and you the rest of the time, Electrocop to me. <laughs> Electrocop is um, it's 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 a maze-based game uh, where you're just trying to find your way to the exit on each level. Okay, but instead, I couldn't figure out instead, what I was actually supposed to do. Yeah, like, they, all, all you're all you're trying to it's just, it's just a maze game. You're trying to you're trying to find your way to the exit point of each level, but sometimes that is behind locked doors. So a big part of Electrocop is. Um, getting through these locked doors and you do that by making use of um, you've got these software packages installed that you can use on the terminals next to the uh, next to the doors and so there's there's one you can use to uh, crack the security code on the door Uh, there's one you can use to I think freeze all the enemies um, and then it's that you can get information about the enemies and about the level and about the weapons and stuff as well Oh, there are four versions of Asteroids on the Evercade because there's one in Electrocop as well. I was well. going to say, how does Electrocop <laughs> have games in Electrocop? That, that blew my freaking mind. Uh, yeah, yeah, but that, that, that's all Electrocop is. It, it, it's it's a maze game, but it's presented from this sort of third-person perspective rather than a top-down perspective. Because so, Electrocop yeah. is cool as shit and, and super yes. impressive. And like, I want to like Electrocop, but I just kind of couldn't couldn't figure out what the expectation of me was like i couldn't figure out what the game's language of like what i was supposed to be doing was aside from yeah. like running around getting hit by stuff i couldn't see and then losing <laughs> and then losing my weapons because your weapons take yeah. damage when you take damage and i would just get angry but like it's one of those games that i want to figure out how to play because it's so unique and interesting 
yeah definitely it's it, it's mostly about sort of spotting spotting enemy patterns so you can you can deal with them and most of the enemies sort of walk from left to right so what you want to try and do is use the z-axis to kind of get behind or in front of them and shoot them from there um, because they can't get you when when you do that but that involves sort of recognizing their movement patterns where they're coming from and that sort of thing it's one of those games where it's quite helpful to sort of play a few times and kind of memorize the levels because that way you can also do things like you can memorize the door codes or write down the door codes as well and romp through the whole thing a lot quicker because the whole thing's on a time limit as well if you want to, I, I don't know anyone who's finished electric up but you've got like an hour to finish the whole game or something like that oh jeez. um so I, I suspect if you want to finish it properly, then you will need to sort of uh, take the time to memorize the game rather than sort of stumbling around, running back, running around in circles. But uh, yeah, it is it is a super cool game, but it takes quite a lot of getting used to because it, it is unlike anything else that was around at the time um, because of sort of the perspective it presented itself from, the way it controls and that sort of thing. So it's worth taking the time to get to know, though. All oh, right, uh, I think that's about everything, unless there's anything you want to bring up. No, I mean, always playing something. I could talk about what I'm playing all day, all day long, but um, you don't want to hear about everything I've been playing. <laughs> well, we've got plenty more to talk about in the third segment as well. So right. let's take a short break for now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about our best experiences of the year. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our third segment, we wanted to talk about some of our favourite experiences that we've had in the last year. So, um, as always, when we do this, this isn't necessarily stuff that came out this year, but it's just stuff that we've spent a decent amount of time with this year. So, um, no real sort of structure or order to any of these. We just want to celebrate a few games that we found particularly interesting or noteworthy for one reason or another. So, you want to kick us off, Chris? What have, what have you got for us? Yeah, uh, my game of the year. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll lead right in with my game of the year, which launched in 1993. Nice. <laughs> Pack Attack. Oh, yes, yes. Pack Attack, which is available on the Evercade Namco Museum Collection number two. Um, I had never played this game before. I did not know this game exists. Um, it is a puzzle game themed around pac-man a tetris style <laughs> drop puzzler themed around pac-man and you have three types of pieces primarily block pieces ghost pieces and pac-mans um and what you do is if you can make an, uh, a uniform row of block pieces they will clear out and make space um but it's very hard to do that just raw um, because you will get the pieces that drop always consist of three pieces in an L pattern, which will be a, so you'll be given a, a, a chunk of three pieces that could consist of a, a combo of any of those three uh, types of pieces in any order or any quantity. It could be two blocks and a ghost, two blocks and a ghost, three ghosts, a Pac-Man, a block and a ghost, like any kind of combination you can imagine in an L shape. Um, and your job is to try to figure out not only ways to continue to clear lines of block pieces to keep getting your score and uh, and not fill the screen up, but the only way to clear a ghost piece is naturally with a Pac-Man piece. So 
as you're constructing and filling the screen, you're not just trying to get um, rows of blocks, but you're also trying to arrange the blocks in such a way that the ghosts are contained in mazes mm -hmm. so that when you slam a Pac-Man piece down, Pac-Man starts going loose and he will eat the ghosts in the line of ghosts you've created. So you want to you're always trying to keep in mind not just how do I clear blocks to keep the screen empty, but also how do I construct a clear path so that I can control the way Pac-Man will go so that he eats the ghosts I need him to eat so that once he clears the maze of ghosts I've built, those blocks will then drop, creating a combo, clearing more space. Um, it's crazy. It's one of the hardest puzzle games, drop puzzlers I've ever played in terms of learning its logic and learning how to play it. Yep. Um, and I, as soon as I played it, I became obsessed with like figuring this logic out, <laughs> me memorizing and understanding the behavior of Pac of how Pac-Man will go when you when you drop him. Learning how to put blocks in the ways to to direct his turns the way you so he'll go the way you want him to go. Um, I just became obsessed with it, and I've probably played this game at least once five days a week since the Evercade launched. <laughs> nice. I, I probably have played this game more than any other game this year. It, when you yeah. when you when you factor in the fact that I play it at least twenty minutes every almost every workday of my life in the morning before I go to work, like obsessed with this game. I mm -hmm. love it so much. Like, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say I've played it more than, like, probably any other game this year. Except for maybe, like, FF7 Remake that I put, like, 70 hours into or whatever. But Yeah. <laughs> like, consistently, I play this almost every day. Well, I'd say that's a, that's the sign of a good game. I've not spent a ton of time with this one yet, but I, I, I was vaguely familiar with it beforehand. I think, I think I saw an episode of, like, Game Grumps or something where they played this as well. Um, so I, I sort of had a passing familiarity with it, but uh, yeah, this is not a, a super well-known game in uh, Namco's back catalogue. Um, this came out on the CDI as well as the Super NES, which will give you an idea of its obscurity. It was oh, sort man. of known, quite known for being a CDI game, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a cool concept. Take takes takes some time to learn. Uh, because you have to figure out particularly how how Pac-Man moves is sort of the main thing you've got to get your head round. Um, but yeah, very very rewarding once you get a feel for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like you know, often we we're, we praise like one of the greatest design principles you can do in a game is like easy to learn, hard to master. Uh -huh. But like Pack yeah. Attack is like the the polar opposite of that. Like it, like the barrier of entry is exceedingly high. But like once you learn its logic, uh, it's exceedingly satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, well, staying on the Evercade theme, then, since I'm sure there's going to be a fair few, uh, fair few things come up from these collections. Um, I think uh, a great discovery for me this year was Starluster. Mm -hmm. um, so Starluster is uh, another Namco game, as it happens. Because uh, the, the Namco, the two Namco collections on the Evercade are, are probably two of the best cartridges. They justify um, the Evercade. Like, if yeah. you bought the Evercade and just the two Namco sets, you would have more incredible gaming than you could possibly imagine for that cost of entry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, Starluster was a particular highlight for me because this this is not one I'd even heard of before uh, before the Evercade. Um, this was originally released for Famicom, um, and it's basically uh, Namco's take on Atari Star Raiders. So it's uh, you you set the spaceship, you have a galaxy map, you have star bases and planets that are gradually coming under attack from enemies. You walk between various parts on the galaxy map, shoot down the enemies, and save the star bases. All fairly straightforward, but just the execution of this game is just so wonderful. It's it's fairly straightforward. It maps very well to the um, uh, to the, the the simple controls of the Famicom. Uh, so it's just two buttons you need, um, but it's it just plays really nicely. It's presented really well. It's satisfying to play. There's variety each time you play because it randomizes the map each time you play, and there's some long-term challenge there as well because the there are three different difficulty levels uh, which don't just uh make the game harder but they actually change the structure of it in some ways so there's a training mission to begin with where all you've got to do basically is go and shoot down a couple of groups of enemies then there's the command mission which is where you have a much larger map uh and you're focusing on defending these places and trying to score as many points as you can by defeating the enemies as quickly as possible and with as minimal damage to the um to the things you're supposed to be defending as possible and then the final mode is adventure mode which is mostly similar to command mode um, but you can find these secret items as you progress through the game uh, and visit different planets and if you find all the secret items you can then go and take on the actual true final boss of the game um, which is if i remember correctly a reference to bosconian um, so yeah you go and shoot that down and like that's the, that's the true end to the game but even then because the game is a little bit different each time you play you can return to it time after time after time and have a good time with it and it's a game that like a complete playthrough only takes like 15 20 minutes or so so it's it's something you can enjoy enjoy at any time which of course makes it ideal for handheld play yeah i like games like that uh, because then the you can always challenge yourself yeah, like, and, and by that I mean like, all right, I was able to finish it in 23 minutes. Like, all right, next run we're gonna shoot for 19 minutes. Like, you can, you can challenge yourself in ways that the structure of the game doesn't necessarily encourage. Yeah. and I kind of enjoy that, especially in older games. Mm -hmm. This is this is one thing I, I find quite interesting about older games as well because these days we're so used to being rewarded for everything we do whether it's with an achievement or a trophy or some in-game unlock or like congratulations you got 5,000 experience or something like that when you look back at a lot of these older games you had to enjoy them like that uh like especially especially if you look right back to like atari 2600 and so on a lot of atari 2600 games were kind of provided to the player in the same sort of way as a tabletop game would be provided in that they they provide you with the rule sets and the mechanics you need for a game but they don't necessarily provide you with sort of the inherent meaning and the rewards for it if that makes sense so they provide you with something to do but you have to provide the meaning for that experience yourself so what what are you going to do with this game are you playing for score are you playing for best time are you playing to beat your friends or whatever and that kind of persisted for quite a long time um sort of right up through I guess sort of the, the 8 and 16-bit era, and to an extent, the early 32-bit era as well, I guess. Um, like, che Checkered Flag, which we mentioned earlier, is quite a good example of this, because 
Checkered Flag is a racing game that ha it has no long-term structure. It has no career mode. It has no. It has a tournament mode where you can play eight races in succession. But if you beat tournament mode, there's like no reward. You don't unlock anything. There's no reason to do that besides saying I beat tournament mode. Um, yeah. And so that's that's quite an interesting thing to go back to because it, it's it's easy to forget kind of how much stuff modern gaming hands to us on a plate. Um, but it's it's quite refreshing to go back to that time when you kind of had to not completely make your own fun but you had to you had to provide your own meaning and context for the experience i think part of it for me is like modern games give you like goals right like yes. there's something to yeah. do like the the question of why is always answered for you there's an accomplishment yeah. but like sometimes with older games the why was to play the game yeah yeah the why wasn't the why wasn't to get to a specific place to do a specific thing there wasn't necessarily narrative there wasn't items to collect things to do achievements to unlock the why was to play the play yeah. was the why mm -hmm. and that's and that's something these older games were all about that, that that's kind of not uh, well it's kind of like i was talking about uh xeno crisis earlier right like it's an old-fashioned yeah. arcade game the reason to play is the why yeah, you beat it. Yeah. You beat it. You roll credits. Like your score is your why. Like the the, the play is the reason you're engaging with it, not yeah. not to get something, not mm -hmm. to do something, to enjoy the experience. That's the reason. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. That's something that sort of I've I've really become conscious of uh, while doing my Atari series in particular over on YouTube, because sort of so many of those games are handled in that way they they give you the tools you need to have fun and then the actual having fun part is up to you really um so yeah i mean not not everyone is going to engage with them on that way but especially if you've sort of grown up with these more modern experiences where as you say they answer the why question for you but it it is a worthwhile experience to go back to some of these things and sort of think about why you're playing them how you're enjoying them and that sort of thing and yeah star, star luster is a good example of that there's a lot of other good examples of that on the evercade as well from from these early games so yeah that's cool um alongside star luster i do also want to mention its sequel star ixium as well uh which yeah, again that's a really neat game which again i didn't know of the existence of before this year but um so star ixium is the playstation one sequel to star luster um and uh, it actually came out in europe uh, which surprised me a great deal because Star Luster, as I say, was a Famicom exclusive release, so it never got an NES release outside of Japan. Uh, but Star Ixion was specifically marketed in its European version as the sequel to Star Luster, a game you've never heard of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was cool. Um, and Star Ixion is, is, is one of those interesting things where um, when you look back at the reviews from the period, you can see that a lot of people who were reviewing things don't necessarily have the broader context that was necessary to understand why that game existed because sure. most of the reviews of star action from the time it came out were like oh this isn't colony wars uh and you're right no it's not colony wars because it's not trying to be colony wars colony wars is a narrative centric space game in the tradition of stuff like wing commander and so on whereas star action is a modern day for the time mid 90s update of star luster which is a narrative-free, mechanic-centric experience where the focus is on you um, exploring things in your own terms, not being told specifically what to do and having to make your own decisions and that sort of thing. So they're two fundamentally different kinds of game. They just happen to both look like space sims where you look out through the cockpit and shoot things. 
Um, so yeah, th this is another one that's been really interesting to return to from a modern perspective. Star Ixium does have much more of a structure than Star Luster does. So the command mode in Star Ixium, rather than just providing you with a big map, it gives you with a structured series of missions to accomplish. Uh, but then there is still this third mode called Conquest in this case, where it does provide you with a big map and the entire approach you take to completing the game on that mode is up to you and it's terrifying and i love it <laughs> yeah your footage of that game really really intrigued me um, it's also like a delight classic namco like broader namco united lore universe right it's full of like like enemies and references to like the history of namco which is so yeah. cool yeah, I, I, I had no appreciation of this until relatively recently when I I was I, I think I was writing about Dig Dug. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, was Dig it, Dug started and we fell down the rabbit hole. Yeah, so like, I was writing about Dig Dug and I, I just happened to be researching it and I, I was, the, the, the article I was reading was like, oh, the main character of Dig Dug isn't called Dig Dug, as most people assume. He's actually called Horitaizo and he's actually the estranged husband of, uh, of Toby from Baraduke who is part of the United Space Force who is, yeah... And you just follow that through, and there's there is an official Namco site. I, I assumed it was a fan site when I first saw it. It, it, it was just there was just sort of fan theories that put all these things together. But no, this is an official Namco site with a complete timeline running from Ace Combat Three all the way to like Galaxian and Galaga and uh, Star Exim and stuff beyond that, and some games you never even heard of. They are all part of this unified timeline, and it's amazing. <laughs> i uh i just got the switch version of mr driller drill land yeah yeah which is um, also part of this timeline right because the, <laughs> because the kid because the kid from mr driller is hori taizo's son yes but you can also play as hori taizo and mr driller drill land and he's like old he's like old and grizzled and like a has-been and everyone makes fun of him <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, like like most Namco games you can think of, most classic Namco games that have a vague sci-fi feel are connected in this way. So like even Burning Force is in there. Yep. Burning Force unfolds in the same universe as Dig Dug, which I love. <laughs> it's like the weird stuff too, like uh, like Wonder Momo and Bravo yeah. Man are all connected in some way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's fantastic. So, I mean, I, I've had a, lo a lot of fun times with Namco this year, um, as you say. So, it's, it's sort of starting with some of the stuff that was in like the Namco Museums collection on on Switch, and moving on onto the Evercade as, as times have gone on. So, yeah, Namco definitely, definitely been a highlight of my year for sure. That uh, that Switch collection gets forgotten about a lot. That's a mm -hmm. really that's a really good pickup because that's got that that airplane game on it. I can't Sky remember Kid. the name of it. Yeah, Sky Kid. Yeah. that's a really neat game. Yes, yes, that's a cool sort of take on the horizontal shooter. But it's got like a bombing, and it's got uh, acknowledgement of the fact that planes' noses go up and down when they dive and climb, which is quite rare in shooter maps. Um, yeah, really cool game. That um, it's actually appeared on a, a fair few Namco compilations over the years, but for one reason or another, it's one that never gets talked about. It's like it, it's on that. Um, there was a really good Namco museum collection for the Wii, if I remember rightly, and I think it's on there as well. Okay, but like, but like, it's one of those games that no one ever talks about. It's like when you talk about old Namco, people talk about Pac-Man, they talk about Galaxian, they talk about Galaga. Like Sky Kid never gets a look in, and I don't really know why because it's great. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. But that's what we do, right? Go play Sky yep. Kid. Exactly. All right, uh, you want to move on then. What else have you been looking at and enjoying yeah. this year? 
As I look at my list, the more I realize this is probably just going to be like a best of of like stuff we highlighted in like the what I've been playing sections of no, each episode. I, I wouldn't this year. worry about that. I wouldn't worry about that. Just but, fire away. But uh, one we've talked about a lot this year is a uh, Snack World. Yep, yep. Snack World launched in uh, February 2020 in the West. Um, I it, we have to have mentioned it in, in almost every other episode <laughs> <laughs> at at this point. But man, oh man. Was that a fun game? Mm-hmm. Um, and and just thinking about it makes me so sad about the the recent news that like level five's western localizing houses might be shutting down. Yeah, um, j- just because level five, it's just puns, puns and puns and puns, and how much fun, <laughs> how much fun they have with the writing and the localization of their own games. Yeah, it just it's just a delight. Um, so Snack World is hard to talk about in a way that doesn't misconstrue what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, as with many of the games we've talked about here, it got mostly savaged by people writing reviews of it because I think people went into it expecting one thing, got another thing, and then just wrote angry, wrote angrily about it when it turned out not to be the thing that they wanted. Because I think what a lot of people saw and wanted when they watched footage of snack world was a japanese take on a diablo style hack and slash loot rpg yeah and and although snack world does feature dna of that it is quite a different type of game Mm -hmm. yeah um in the sense that a diablo style hack and slasher has very has an almost arcadey feel where there's very low stakes um, and, and you can just kind of mash and slash your way through stuff without thinking about timing and distance and hit detection. Um, whereas Snack World is a much more deliberately paced game. Um, and that's where it's very, um, you know, that's something that many Japanese games feature that Western developed games do not. Yeah. In the sense that weight, rhythm, and timing are really important to every aspect of the game. Um, your dodge roll is very heavy. Um, weapons have a distinct feeling of weight. Um, so you get the different weapons, right? Like swords, axes, twin knives, bows and arrows. Understanding the rhythm and timing of those weapons and where your vulnerability windows are when you swing them is really important to being successful in combat in this game. Much yeah. more so than it is in a game like a Diablo or a Torchlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and the importance of equipment in this game, the whole game is about equipment in a unique way that's rather different from traditional hack and overhead hack and slash loot fest games. Um, whereas, you know, in a traditional Diablo style game or a Titan quest or whatever, like equipment's important because it puts your level, your, your stats up or down in important ways and modifies your attributes, right? Like, oh, you got this vest. It puts your defense up plus five, but it brings your agility down one and it gives you resistance to fire. And like, mm-hmm. great, great. That's an important part of what Snack World does as well. But Snack World adds additional um, wrinkles to that in a way that previous games don't necessarily do. So, like, besides elemental stuff, like, enemies have Pokemon style types, right? There's ghost type, machine type. Different equipment, be it weapons or armor, have different. Um, 
different affinities for those types. They're either weak or strong against those types, or they ignore those types and nullify them. Um, then each piece of equipment also has a, um, a manufacturer. So understanding yeah. the brand that makes your equipment is also important. So every day when you sign on to Snack World, what is stylish in the world of Snack World changes. It's like what brands are popular changes. Um, so equipping equipment that is made by the brand that's popular for that day will confer certain bonuses to you. So every single stage you go into has an interesting dynamic because between what's what brands are popular that day what com what the composition of the enemy types in in that stage will dictate what equipment you have in your possession is most effective to take into that stage mm -hmm. and it's not just a matter of what gives you the highest numbers you may take the best sword you have into a stage and it might be absolutely useless because the enemies yeah. in that stage are ghost type and that and that sword is specifically weak against ghost type. So it, it's not just a matter of keeping your strongest equipment, the stuff with the highest numbers. You have to keep in your inventory all kinds of equipment. Stuff in a traditional RPG you probably would have thrown away because it became obsolete 10 levels ago <laughs> might be super effective against the next boss. Like, you, yeah. you have to keep everything <laughs> because you never know when it will come in handy. There are still stages I'm playing at, like, later chapters of the game where I'm using the, the first hat I bought. Yeah, yeah. Because that hat has the proper combination of type resistances where its stats don't really matter that much. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a totally radically different take on assessing and thinking about the usefulness of equipment in an action RPG. And yeah. I've never experienced anything like that before. Mm -hmm. There's also some Monster Hunter DNA in there as well, isn't there? With with equipment upgrading and getting materials and that sort of thing as well. That's right. So there's there's the the, the whole sort of upgrading meta game in that as well, and making yourself more powerful and getting better versions of the equipment you've got. So there's yeah, there's so much to do. That that game has been a real a real highlight for me. It's it's, it's fun in single player. It's fun in multiplayer. There's a lot of as you say, really silly puns and witty writing in it, and it's. Yeah, it's super fun. Super fun. I, I need to go back and play some more of that. I never actually beat it. So. Yeah, me neither. We should get some more multiplayer in. We had a really mm. good time playing multiplayer with that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think we're still relatively about the same place in the story, so it'd be mm. very easy for us to pick up. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. So that has been a highlight of, uh, of mine as well, certainly. Um, another game I want to bring out uh, that was uh, sort of quite a surprise for me is uh, a game I wrote about back in March which is called Dead or School um, oh, yeah. so this this um, this is a game that I'd sort of been casually aware of beforehand because I, I think I picked it I picked up an early access version on a Steam sale at one point when it was like two dollars or something like that um, but I, I happened to to get the opportunity to review the uh, the Switch version for Nintendo Life. I think it was it was one of the one of the earlier things that I did for Nintendo Life this year. So um, Dead or School is, um, I guess you'd, you'd call it a, a sort of side-scrolling action RPG uh, in a lot of ways. There are elements of open structure 2D platforming in there, but it's kind of not as uh, not quite as interconnected and freeform as 
uh, sort of your average Metroid or your Castlevania or that sort of thing. It's, it's very much sort of, there are self-contained zones uh, that you work your way through and there's sometimes alternate paths through those and you need to explore the whole zone and so on but those zones are mostly self-contained but the, there's there's lots of cool things about about dead at school but the first of which is the the origin of it in the first place uh which is that uh there was a creator who um he was originally an erotic artist as as most japanese creators spend some of their time doing at one point or another <laughs> um but he 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 grew tired of drawing erotic art um and he decided he wanted to be a manga artist um and so he he put together a, a work that he called machine doll nanami chan um that was sort of like his big passion project um he got um he got rejected a lot of times of this but eventually managed to get it get it released um and the concept of machine doll nanami chan was um the a piece of a piece of speculative fiction that was like looking at our relationship with technology so it was looking at um how human beings would interact with artificial life and, and so on so uh, it explores a lot of things like um, sort of Asimov's three doors of robotics and that sort of thing and uh, there's the inevitable robot rebellion and uh, all that sort of thing and things go terribly wrong and yeah that, that was where the manga left off and Dead or School is basically a follow up to that manga it doesn't necessarily make that obvious straight away um, but yeah it's, it's, it's a direct follow up to that manga where you are following the fate of um, a girl who has been living in these underground enclaves that humanity has been forced into by the machines on the surface um, and um, this girl has just a, a very innocent wish that she wants to see the surface and she, she wants to go to school because she, she read about school in a picture book and she decides that that's something she wants to experience for herself. So her entire motivation for this game is that she wants to go to school. Um, poor, poor sweet misguided angel. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, what unfolds then is this, this sort of huge multi-stage adventure uh, where you work your way through these um, these expansive 2D environments, uh, collecting lots of different weapons and fighting enemies and developing your character and all sorts of things like this. And it was just an incredibly satisfying and well put together game. It had really solid mechanics. It had really excellent combat, uh, both in terms of melee and ranged combat. Uh, lots of different upgrades you could apply to the main character some really really interesting level design with some some really solid environmental puzzles i remember there are several points in the game where i i sort of got through a puzzle and i just sort of sat back after that puzzle and thought that was really good that was that was a really cool thing that i've done in this game and yeah that game was was just full of moments like that because it's sort of like a small-scale, low-budget passion project, it's got a few rough edges here and there, but the whole thing is just a perfect example of something that is just held together with such joy and love for their creation that it, it really shines through in the game. It's, it's, a, it's a game where you can feel how strongly the creator feels about his creation as you play it, and it was just such an absolute pleasure to play. And... Um, yeah, I was I was delighted to see that it got a physical release on Switch through Marvelous as well, so you can actually own a copy of this to go on your shelf as well, which gives it slightly more chance of being remembered than if it was just a download thing that disappears into the depths of the eShop after a couple of weeks. So, 
All but yeah, I remember that, from footage of this game is just, the, isn't there like a prevalence of rocket launchers? Just like progressively more insane rocket launchers. So the the, the, the way the mechanics work are the your main character, she can hold a melee weapon, a machine gun, and a launcher. Um, and as you progress through the game, uh, you, you you get new pieces of equipment for each of those slots, and you can add uh, you can add items onto them. And yeah, as as you go through, each of them sort of get progressively ridiculous mods on them. There's character upgrades that add sort of passive abilities to one of those three weapon types. Um, so yeah, yeah, there is quite a strong focus on rocket launchers, um, but also it's it's a case of picking the right enemy, for the the right weapon for the right enemy in a lot of cases. So the rocket launchers are obviously very useful for bosses. Um, melee attacks are, are useful for sort of um, small and squishy enemies. Uh, machine guns. There's various various ways you can wield them, different stances you can put them in, use your stamina in different ways. So there's a lot of depth to the mechanics, and yeah, it was just it was really really fun. So uh, yeah, if, if you've if you've not checked that out or, or if you've not heard of it, I strongly recommend giving it a go because it was uh, it was one of those games that I I sort of got handed for a review and I thought oh I'll, I'll, I'll give this a go see how it goes and I I was promptly glued to it for about thirty hours. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, great stuff, great stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I've been meaning to pick that up. It's got a really really cute <laughs> aesthetic to it. Yeah. Love it. Uh, here's one that I think you would agree with as well. Uh, yep. Clubhouse games. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, if there was ever a game for this time we live in, Clubhouse games is it, right? Everyone yep. everyone you know has a Switch. It's not safe to It's not safe to hang out with them. Everyone should be playing this online against each other right now. Mm -hmm. You know, like... Moncala <laughs> gets, gets real dirty real fast. Um, just, I don't know. We've talked a lot about how, like, the you know, the, the original DS version of this was wonderful in its own right. Um, and this is just, uh, the Switch version just kind of continues um, everything that's wonderful about the idea of having a one-stop digital place for 50-plus classic games. Um and of course as a tool to learn how to play them as well yeah that's what i was going to say this is one of my favorite things about this game is because it provides it provides some sort of basic tutorials for you but the the real highlight of it for me is sort of the interactive uh, assists you can put on so when you're playing stuff like chess um you can uh bring up an overlay of the board that shows how threatened each base is and so using that, you can uh, figure out where are going to be the best places to move to, where you're going to be safe, where it's going to be a bit risky, and that sort of thing. And that is such a good way of learning how to play the game that I've never seen a game... I, I've never seen an adaptation of tabletop games do something quite like that before. But I feel I learned more in a couple of sessions with chess on Clubhouse Games than I did in like a lifetime of sort of vaguely knowing how to play chess, but not knowing how to play chess well. <laughs> sure. I mean, even simpler games like, um, you know, I, I my buddies and I love checkers because it's really quick yeah. and easy to play. And like, I didn't realize like some of the rules of checkers. Like, I'd been playing it wrong my whole life. Yeah. Like, I didn't realize you had to make a move if you can. Like, if you yeah. can make a move to take a piece, you have to do it. And that's not how me and my friends played checkers when we were kids. So we would mm. like play chicken and stuff with each other, and like not like adding that dynamic totally changes the strategic element of the game. 
Yeah. So, so like I was so grateful for like learning that's the proper way to play. And mm -hmm. so having that like digital version with the rules programmed in hard means yeah. you really have to learn to play these games the right way, which is something yeah. I was extremely grateful for. Yeah. Um, and of course the access to games that I'd never always meant to learn to play but never could before. I always always wanted to learn to play um Moncala. I always wanted to learn the right way to play um like Go, full Go isn't on it, but the the little little version of Go is on there. So it's like a yeah. like a like a Go starter course. And like I've always wanted the opportunity to to sit down and be taught the proper way to play these games. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the sort of worldwide aspect of this package is a real strength of it. So you've got stuff in there that um, sort of maybe isn't quite as well known by sort of the the mainstream audience who knows what chess and checkers and the Connect Four and stuff is. But you've got stuff like Hanafuda in there, and again it teaches you how to play it gives you it, it, it provides you with enough assistance uh for you to be able to understand what is going on without having to remember all sorts of things it's got reference guides you can look at it's got highlights on the cards and all that sort of thing so yeah it's it's a great way of 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 not just learning sort of well-established games that here in the west it's a way of learning some games from elsewhere in the world as well stuff like as you say mancala hanafuda um and then you've got more obscure um, sort of traditional folk games as well. Things like Nine Men's Morris and uh, Hare and Hounds or whatever it's called. Um, which aren't necessarily super fun because th those are both <laughs> those are both games that have been solved. So there there is an, an optimal way to play both of those games. But yeah, I hate Nine Men's Morris for yeah. that reason. Like my buddy and I sat down to play it. We were instantly like, there's only one right way to play this game. Yeah. Like we figured it out almost immediately. It wasn't yeah. like we knew immediately there was only one right way to play it to like yeah. lock in to, to a victory and then yeah. that made us not want to play it anymore <laughs> but i mean it, it's it's interesting that they're there they're, they're interesting yeah. games to study and understand how they work and understand how they might have had influence on some other games as well yeah, uh, yeah that, well, from a historical perspective the interest yeah. is there yeah, uh, and, and again, it's also it also makes the whole thing a bit more kind of family friendly as well. So something like dots and boxes is something that you can you can solve very easily with an adult mind. But if you're playing, if you want something you can play with the kids or something like that, that's really easy to understand. You can. I love you playing stuff like dots and boxes with kids because the game to me becomes how do I lose? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like like that's like that's that becomes the game. Is how, do I, is how do I lose? Like how do I how do how do I make stupid moves and how do I craft a victory for the kid? Like it, it becomes a totally different level of strategizing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can, you, also, can always, you you can always sort of formalize that and say like whoever has the fewest boxes at the end wins or something like that. Yeah, but I play fighting again, games in a similar way when I play fighting games with people who aren't into fighting games. Yeah. Like when I play Smash Brothers with like people who aren't super into gaming, it's like, what do I, what what do I scale back? How do I modify my performance so that I look like I'm <laughs> so that I look like I'm trying, but I don't put them off of the experience by decimating them? Like, yeah, yeah. I, again, I mean, it's it's taking us back to that that question of why, isn't it? It's like why are you playing these and and this package is a good way of exploring that in various ways so yeah definitely definitely something every switch owner should have in their library for sure and 
also worth noting that they they carried over one of the best features of the ds version which is that uh you only need one copy of the game to be able to play multiplayer so yeah every, that's if, if you are playing with other people who own switches but don't necessarily own the game they can download a free bit of software from the eShop and you can have up to four switches networked together with just one copy of the software which is fantastic yeah. Yeah, when it's safe, when it is safe to spend time with people in their homes again, like, I can't imagine this game not being in my pocket all the time. Yeah. Like, everyone I know has a Switch. Like, I can't imagine going to a friend's house without this game for a party or or get-together. We should also just, like, pay some lip service to how technically impressive a lot of what was done here was in subtle ways. Yeah. not only do these games look beautiful, like the physicality to the way the games were rendered is really impressive. Like the wood looks like wood. The marble looks like marble. Like yeah. it's just um, some of the games that haven't been talked about as much, the stuff that aren't traditional board games, stuff like the um, stuff like the slot cars and the fishing really yeah. did amazing things with the Switch. So yes. like what I'm – so you can play the slot cars on your TV and the slot car track is there displayed fully – but what you can do if you have multiple switches is actually build the slot car track on a table by laying multiple switches down next to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible. You can yeah. do that you can do that with the river too when you play the fishing game and it's so it's so sensitive that you can actually stand one of the switches up vertically and then it displays a waterfall on that yeah. screen. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like, just so pure nintendo just mm-hmm. pl- ways to make not only a video game but a toy with physicality and wonderment as part of the package like just it can't be understated how, how much effort was put into making something that would be seemingly so simple I, yeah. I think that's one of the things that impresses me so much about this game right because many back in the day it would have been so easy for any of like the sh- shovelware companies to make something like this yeah. Right. How many versions of something like this exist out there for like the Wii and the DS and the Game Boy Advance and the PS2, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, like collection of 20 classic games, just like shit it out with zero effort. But this has that classic Nintendo effort where it is such a polished and well-made product that like you, you feel good about buying it because you can feel the love of the uh, that went into celebrating these games. Yeah. And creating a comprehensive package. Yeah. On the um on the sort of shovelware note, it just just reminded me of um there was a PS2 release um uh, called Ultimate Mind Games. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. I think no. it was I think it was part of the Simple series. Um but um it at first glance it looks like just one of these collections of board games and stuff. Um I haven't explored it in depth, but I, I did boot it up, and I was very surprised to discover that uh, there is a full strategy RPG in there where all of the battles are board games. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's so bizarre. This yeah, yeah, but it's it's like this big sort of grand strategy thing where you're conquering territories and stuff. And anytime you get into a battle, you're playing chess, or you're playing checkers, or you're playing Connect Four, or you're playing cards, or yeah, it's, it's it's bizarre. I need to explore that in more detail at some point because it, it seemed fascinating. Um, it's no surprise yeah. to me anymore when something from the Simple series ends up having tremendous amounts of cleverness and hidden depth. Like that's all. <laughs> that's, that's been like consistently like your findings exploring the Simple series games. Yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, moving on. Um, another game that I wanted to uh, mention and uh, give some love to is Disaster Report 4. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Disaster Report 4 uh, came out on Switch and PS4. On both of them, it's an absolute disaster from a technical <laughs> perspective. Um, but, yeah, but it's... I, I had such a good time with this game. It was fascinating. Um, just because of all sorts of things, really. It was It's a very kind of narrative and character-centric experience. Um, but it's it was also just a really interesting take on survival horror as well. So you're not fighting against monsters. You're not fighting against people who are trying to kill you. Um, you are just trying to make your way safely through these various environments that are in various degrees of disrepair following an earthquake. Uh, so there's collapsing buildings and there's uh, sort of people trying to eke out survival. And... It was just an absolutely fascinating game to play from it from a narrative perspective in particular because it acknowledged the fact that although we would like to think that when things go horribly wrong as they're depicted as going in the game that everyone would kind of muck in and help each other it acknowledges the fact that human beings are quite often fundamentally shitty to each other and there are a lot of situations throughout Disaster Report where you're having to deal with people who are being completely unreasonable and completely unkind and uncaring to people who aren't from around here or that sort of thing. Um, and you go on this big journey from sort of the, the centre of the city that you were going for a job interview in, sort of working your way out towards the suburbs and trying to get escape from this city over the course of several in-game days. And it's just fascinating to see the ways it depicts different communities as responding to this crisis um, and the different ways that this crisis has has sort of physically affected these communities as well so there's there are areas that have like the city center where it's obviously done a lot of damage but it's not that long before people can go back to doing their business normally and then you get out to one of the suburbs that has been absolutely completely and utterly destroyed by fire and it's a completely different atmosphere there and the people are responding to it very differently and the challenges you're faced with with interacting with the inhabitants around there are, are completely different as well and it was just such a fascinating well-written and emotionally engaging game that it's it was definitely one of the most memorable experiences i had for the whole year and one of those things where the strength of the writing and the storytelling and stuff was enough to distract from the technical shortcomings so make no mistake this runs like an absolute dog on anything you play it on um <laughs> but it, it it doesn't matter after a while if you let yourself get drawn into the story and what is going on it doesn't matter it's 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 just and it, a really immersive experience that involves you in this world in the lives of these characters that you sort of there's a lot of di different sort of groups of characters that you kind of meet up with on several occasions over the course of the story so um you sort of uh, see how they're getting on on the first day and then you might come back and see how they're doing on the third day and things are a bit different for them and so on and every character in that game has got an interesting arc to explore and your own character's got an interesting arc to explore and then there's various optional things you can do and side quests and there's a really bizarre bit where it turns into a one-on-one -on -one fighting game at one point and <laughs> it's 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 another one of those games that was the creators obviously had a vision for what they wanted to achieve and from a technical perspective they might not have 100 been able to achieve that but certainly from an artistic perspective they they achieved very much what they wanted to do and that was 
yeah that that's why disaster report 4 is very much one of my most memorable games of the year for sure i have no experience with that series Mm-hmm. no this it's was not. my first experience with the series as well but so i was i was really interested to check it out and after the experience i had with this i understand that each of the disaster reports games is a little bit different from each other and particularly the first ones on ps2 i think i think they got quite heavily localized and sort of americanized i believe Shh, that um, sense. Uh, I, I, I was a thing that happened yeah um but i'm i mean i'm definitely interested to check the other ones out now because this was just such a fascinating experience to go through uh sort of genuinely emotionally harrowing at times so probably not one to play when you're feeling a bit down in the dumps but uh yeah it was (laughs) definitely not right now um but yeah it's uh it was yeah an artistic highlight of the year for me absolutely cool yeah i'll have to pick that up i'll have to pick that up i always wanted to can't own every game. <laughs> mm-hmm. The the nice thing about it is because it's distributed by uh, Nisa, they put it on deep discount quite often, so you can probably get a, a, a copy quite cheap now. Oh, so. good. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. It's time. All right, you got anything else for us? Oh, I have, I have stuff upon stuff. It's oh, please good, continue then. Please it's been continue. Been a good year. Arbitrarily throwing a reward an award out. Uh, in a year of incredible compilations, thanks to the Evercade, I just want to celebrate the greatest compilation of the year, um, which we dedicated a whole episode to, which was the Psycho Shooting Stars sets. Yep, yep. I mean, compilations are nothing new in the modern gaming atmosphere. I've got a ton of them, and they're great. But there's just something magical about the Psycho Shooting Stars collections, Alpha and Bravo, um, by presenting us with two massive sets of you know it's so easy these days that a lot of these compilations are like 8 and 16 bit games from like yesteryear or or, uh, older arcade titles but to to boldly come out with a collection of PS1 and Saturn era games yeah um, which are just unless you're a millionaire many of these games are fundamentally inaccessible anymore because the, the amount of money something like a uh, a Dreamcast, I mean, a, a Saturn copy of one of the Sengoku Canon games. It just you can't afford it. It's it's not it's not tenable to own these games. So, so yeah. the, the Psycho Shooting Stars collection was so important from not just a accessibility standpoint, but also a historical standpoint because it gave us such a picture of the evolution of Psycho as a development house. Mm, yeah, the way the Sengoku Canon games changed as the series progressed. Um, the way the, um, the Strikers series changed and progressed mechanically as well as visually from game to game. Mm-hmm. Um, just everything about these was just a, a historical love letter to, to, one of the, to one of the shoot-em-up genre's greatest design houses. Yeah, and I, we talked about this on the episode we did dedicated to them, but... They they are real greats of the shoot 'em up uh, genre, but then they're also a name that's perhaps not quite as well known as some of the other developers out there as well. So to sort of celebrate them in these collections like this was was great because I, I'd not encountered any of these games before. Really, I sort of had had passing experience with Gunbird, but that was about it. Yeah, and so a lot of these were new to me, um, and I was very pleasantly surprised by a lot of them. 
Uh, I mean, we, we, we talked about how I, I'd assumed that the Strikers 9045 series was going to be a dry and boring series about uh, World War II aircraft. But no, it was World War, World, World War II aircraft with laser beams being piloted by dogs fighting giant robots. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes you think you're fighting an aircraft carrier. Then that aircraft carrier turns into a giant robot praying mantis. You don't know. You don't know where Strikers is going. <laughs> it's the best and the soundtracks and the character design and the uh, the early bullet hell without quite being bullet hell like the most yeah. excessive like, this was like the era of vertical shoot 'em ups to me where they were really challenging and starting to inch toward what would become Donmaku shooters but they weren't quite there yet yeah. they were still accessible and scrutable and you could actually figure out what the hell was going on on the screens like oh boy Good times. Yeah, Good for times. sure. And Gunbird. Just having Gunbird 1 and 2 alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those and, are uh, those definite favorites for me. And uh, Zero Gunner. Uh, from a historical perspective, to be able to own Zero, the, this remade version of Zero Gunner, which is reprogrammed from the ground up because the original source code was lost. Like, yeah. significant to be able to have and play that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, yeah. It was a, it was a real pleasure to explore those, and each one provided something new and interesting to to find out. So it's it's not it's not a case that I'm just sort of reskinning the same mechanics. Each one of those games is unique and distinctive in its own way. It was a, a real pleasure to discover these for the first time, and I imagine yeah, and a real pleasure to rediscover some of them if you are familiar with them from uh, from past years. Yeah, and it, it really to have them all together was like a new opportunity to appreciate how much of like a masterclass in design and the shoot 'em up genre these games were. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I've played many of the Strikers games before, but like years apart. Mm -hmm. So, like, it was very easy to have forgotten the way each of them differed. Like, they all blended together in my head. Yeah. But to be able to play them in sequential order in the same evening really highlighted how different they all were and the subtle yeah, the subtle yeah. mechanical changes that each one made as the series evolved so like having these collections really afforded me that opportunity in a, in a way that i'd never had before so i was really grateful for that mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah there's 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 a lot of value to being able to um to do that i think and that's that's one of the reasons why i like waiting a while before i i, I look into sort of stuff that are more substantial series or things that have been going on for a while because sure you, you get a very different experience from from looking at things in immediate succession from each other than you do if there's like a year apart from each other and that's that's not necessarily something that becomes obvious um until many years after they were originally released but um yeah it's it's always fascinating to go back to stuff like that that's been and one of the joys for me um reading and observing your playthroughs of the atelier games yeah because that's... i think it was really common in uh, you know in games writing all across the internet as those games released it's like like these are reskins every game is the same it's just the same game year after year with a different story and different characters yeah, yeah. But like this this is this is exactly what i was just going to say as as i've been working my way through the atelier series it's become extremely extremely apparent that each installment even within the same subseries is unique each has its own elements that maybe build on the previous installment 
but more often than not they actually completely reinvent the game from from installment to installment so like you look at atelier iris the three atelier iris games are all completely different mechanically from each other mm -hmm. and yet when i was doing research for covering uh, atelier iris 3 um it was described by a reviewer who um was sort of, it was sort of at the time typically held up as like one of the great examples of uh, British games journalism and that sort of thing. He described it as sort of being a very conservative game. And like Atelier Iris 3 was a, good, a massive reinvention from its previous installment and a massive reinvention from Atelier Iris Eternal Mana. Um, and yet, because he was in a position to be able to write for, um, I think it was Eurogamer, he slapped it with a 5 out of 10 rating, which is a kiss of death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so how many people missed out on a really excellent really beautifully presented rpg experience that was distinctive even from other installments in the same series because of reviews like that and that's that's been really sort of saddening to see as i look back and i see how common that is unfortunately it's funny because i remember we've had this discussion before but i loved atelier iris 3 when it came out and specifically one of the reasons i loved it so much was i was just coming down off the high of monster hunter and i yeah. found i found its unique mission-based structure so radically different from any other rpg i played before that in my head when i played atelier iris 3 i was like this is something fresh and new yeah it's, yeah. it's like how are how are those opinions so completely diametrically opposed? Yes. Yeah. Oh, because I understand game design and I think about things. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's, it's it's been on the on the one hand, like I say, it's it's been saddening to see how how widespread that is. But at the same time, it also means that while I'm exploring these games, I get to discover all these new things for myself. And like I, I'm coming into these with no prior expectations. I have no idea what to expect from the Atelier games I haven't played yet. And my experiences with the series so far suggest that each one is going to provide something absolutely, completely unique. And that's been a real pleasure to discover as I go through. So um, it's hard to pick one that has been a highlight of the year for me. But I think I think if I if I had to pick one that has been and a special highlights for me um i think it would probably be manakimia 2 yeah that's where i thought you were gonna go i remember um, talking to you about that when you were playing it mm. so so manakimia 2 um came out only in japan and north america so th this is one that for one reason or another didn't get localized for europe um but it's it's fantastic it's um it's got uh two playable protagonists who each have their own story um, and those two playthroughs are different from each other. You go through the same locations, and there's the, there's the same sort of major things happen in the background, but the sort of main character-centric stuff is unique to those two characters, and they intertwine with each other. And when you've beaten both of those story paths, there's a sort of uh, a sort of proper finale that involves both of them. The alchemy system is really cool. The battle system is amazing. It's kind of building on what Atelier Iris Three did. Um, it's got a fantastic soundtrack with some some of the most face melting guitar riffs I've ever heard in gaming. Um, it's it's fantastic, and that one in particular because because it didn't have anywhere near as widespread a release as the other games, uh, and also because it came out so late. Um, so this came out in hold on. 
It certainly came out well after the Xbox 360 was already on the market, so this and, and by like a couple of years. So it was in that crossover period where the Xbox 360 had been pretty much established uh, for for three years. Here we are. Yeah. So Xbox 360 had been out for three years, and Manakimia 2 came out on the PS2. So it was like 2009 or so. And so, who was going to buy a PS2 game in 2009? Apart yeah. from us. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, even I, even I didn't buy it. I don't have either of the Monokimia games. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at that point, I was on the PS3, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as, as console generations have proceeded, particularly in this sort of era, sort of going from the SD to the HD era, there was this sort of assumption that when you moved on, there was no reason to look back. Um but sort of looking back on stuff like Manakemia now, there is plenty of reason to look back. There is plenty of reason to look back on these old games and to explore the libraries of stuff. Particularly the stuff that came out from this sort of dark period when most most people, most players, most developers, most publishers had moved on to the next generation. But there were some people still chipping away trying to get the absolute best out of the previous generation. Because that's often when you get the most spectacular and interesting games. That's often the case. That's why yeah. I'm not counting out like the PS4 yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, you never know what we're going to see. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and Manakimia 2 is absolutely, I would say, one of the most beautiful games I've seen on the PS2. It's stunning. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. It's It's got this beautiful blend of um, sort of 2D sprite work and 2D hand-drawn close-ups and simple but evocative polygon backgrounds so it's all it's all clearly still very block based but just the design of those blocks and the textures on them and that sort of thing it's got this beautifully evocative presentation that really really gives you the atmosphere of the environments you're exploring and it's 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 just absolutely beautiful and we don't get games that look like that anymore no like no, it's e a very... e like even in the indie space it's quite rare to get something that looks quite like this in 10 years, we will. The indie space isn't nostalgic for the PS2 era right now. Yeah, yeah. We're only just starting to see these days indie games playing with low-poly counts that look like Saturn and PS1 era games. Yes, yes. So, like, in another 10 years, there will be, like, indie PS2 and Xbox One-style games. Mm -hmm. Which is weird, right? So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, we said we said on on the last episode, didn't we? Like, PS2 is twenty years old. Doesn't doesn't feel like it, does it? But yeah, it is. PS2 is super retro now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have one of my best friends. Uh, she's a really talented artist, and, and she's into games and anime. She's twenty one. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, she was one when the PS2 came. So like, that is retro as it gets for her. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and i'm here going look at my colored flickering blocks on the 2600 yeah, yeah. well I, I, have, I, have, I have friends from work um you know who i get along with really well and like when it wasn't deadly to do so like every other friday we'd go out for drinks or something after work and um and I, and I keep telling them, like, you know, when it's safe, like, I want you guys to come over and play some old school games. And they're like, oh, like, you have, like, PS3 stuff? And I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, no, no, asteroids. <laughs> yeah, like, um, I'm, I'm thinking more like, <laughs> I just got my analog NT Mini Noir. Like, I'm thinking we could play Adventures of Dino Ricky. And they're like, yeah. you got Ape? They're like, you got Ape Escape? I'm like, well, yeah, I do. But that's not really what I was talking about when I said come over yeah. and play old games. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, I've mentioned my the Davidson Cup on here a few times that obviously sure. we weren't we weren't able to do this year, but um, sort of around, around my around my birthday, sort of tradition for a, a few years was to have people come over and we'd have a we'd have a tournament on various video games, and I'd normally structure it as kind of a journey through time. So we'd start with twenty six hundred era stuff, work our way through um eight and 16 bit stuff maybe a bit of ps1 ps2 stuff and eventually end up with some more modern stuff um but the most popular stuff often ended up being that really early 2600 stuff so like we we would play stuff like real sports soccer on the atari 2600 which is just such a poor approximation of soccer that it becomes a hilarious video game when you're playing it with multiplayer sure (laughs) that stuff's great in a group setting it's so simple that anyone can pick it up and it's goofy so you're like laughing at it the whole time yeah yeah awesome Uh, right what else you got what else i got uh streets of rage 4 Oh, yeah, I actually haven't played that yet, to my shame. Oh, I've had it on my oh shelf my. since Limited Run sent it to me, and I haven't even fired it up yet, so I must correct that at some point. It's uh, it's great. It's great for a number of reasons. Um, and, and um, you know, we've talked about a lot of beat-em-ups. Um, you know, we did two beat-em-up-focused episodes, because, <laughs> we, you know, we love us some beat-em-ups, and I love me some modern indie beat-em-ups specifically, but um, one of the things I actually found very refreshing about Streets of Rage 4 as compared to a lot of um, indie beat-em-ups, is that it was devoid of RPG mechanics. Oh, right, um, yeah. So, you know, it's very popular in an indie beat-em-up game to be to, to kind of go back to when beat-em-ups were no longer in fashion, right? After, like, the Genesis and the Super Nintendo um, passed. Like, the beat-em-up was thought of, of a, as a lost genre because there wasn't staying power to it. There was yeah. no character development, no upgrading, no sense of progress. It was one of those games that we were talking about earlier where the why was just for the sake of playing, and that mm-hmm. was no longer in fashion. So when the indie scene came around, one of the most popular ways to revive the beat-em was to add RPG-style progression. Um, now, this is something that had existed in old beat-em-ups too, obviously River City Ransom and some of the Technos games, but it wasn't the the through line. It wasn't often what happened. Um so that kind of got resurrected and tacked on to a lot of uh, modern beat-em-ups. Um, and it's great, and I love it. But Streets of Rage 4 just decided, nah, we're just going <laughs> ma- to make a Mega Drive-era beat-em-up with modern tech. Mm-hmm. You, pl- you play it to play it. it. Just stage one through to the end. There's no character development. There's no stat growth. There's no RPG collection of items and new moves you've got the move set you got at the beginning of the game for the whole game you have to master that move set in order to get you through to the end of the game um so it's 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 a purely old school design meshed with the most beautiful hand-drawn 2d animation you could possibly imagine and there's just something so pure about this modern visual presentation with a game that could have essentially existed on a 16-bit platform yeah (laughs) that it just feels so good so good um it's charming it, it, it runs well it's just that right blend of challenging but like with modern adaptations like um if you die, there's like you can choose modifiers to make your next run easier. Yeah, which is which is kind of cool, like stuff like that. So like, unlike a 16-bit beat 'em up, uh, it allowed me and my friends to actually play through it. 
Yeah. Because we could we had infinite continues and we could use those modifiers to either uh, lower the difficulty or make more weapons appear on the next run or, or stuff like that. So just it was just the right touch of classic design sensibilities with modern quality of life improvements paired with a presentation oozing with love for the franchise. It just everything yeah. about it feels right. Mm-hmm. The Streets of Rage has always been kind of an interesting case anyway because it's it's always been a beat-em-up design for home play, hasn't it? So right. it's always had a, a certain, a, a slightly more friendly um, approach to the player than, than your typical arcade game. But uh, yeah, it sounds like they've taken that to a new level with this one. So yeah. I will enjoy just, checking it out when I'm recording footage for this. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just, it's so lovingly made. Which, I mean, yeah. shouldn't be a surprise because it's Lizard Cube. It's the same people who did that Wonder Boy remake yeah. that got, got all that press. But like... There's just so many nods to the lore and like the structure and the history of the series. Like, um, you know, like in the original Streets of Rage, you're police, you're, you're cops, like undercover cops. And so if you remember, because I know you explored some of these games back when like the Genesis compilations and stuff came out. Um, your bomb, your screen clearing bomb in the first Streets of Rage, you summon a cop car and the cop drives up and like launches a missile or whatever. And that clears all the bad <laughs> yeah. guys on the screen. right? But as Streets of Rage progressed, you were no longer cops. You you are like vigilantes, and that's that's yeah. very that's very much the case to the point in four. You're not just vigilantes; you're criminals. Like the mm-hmm. the cop the cops are after you. So, so some of the enemies you're fighting in Streets of Rage four are cops, and there's one there's a boss you fight that's a cop, like one of like the elite cops, and she is in the position that you were in in Streets of Rage one. Yeah. So she is the the elite special cop that was sent to take you down. Um, So she has the screen clearing bomb from the first game (laughs) that she uses on you. It's it's just stuff like that. I was like I was like ah! I was just like the whole time. I was like this is amazing. It all makes (laughs) sense. It all makes me feel like the love of Streets of Rage. Just just wonderful stuff. Can't recommend it highly enough. Cool. Well, I will make some time for that. Like I say, I'll need to record some footage for this, so I'm looking forward to that now. Cool. I'm not sure. It's online, I think. I think it's got online. Yeah. Yeah, you have to let me know. We'll, we'll do some do some multiplayer. Hmm, sure. And it's got Blaze, oh. so game of the year. It's got Blaze. That is the important thing. It's 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 got both new and old Blazes, I remember correctly as well, hasn't it? Isn't it's got it? like, like a, four this... different versions. of. You can unlock the Streets of Rage 1 through 3 versions of almost all the characters. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. But new, slightly mature Blaze is... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> all right. Any more for us, given that we've gone on for an hour and ten minutes? Uh, I just want to declare best Shantae game of the year. <laughs> okay, Sha- go for it. Shantae and the Seven Sirens, only Shantae game of the year. Excellent. Um, it's great. It's great. It's Shantae play at the end. Good. Looking forward to that. I've uh, Again, I've had my, my copy came in from Limited Run a little while back when I've uh, not not made time to check it out yet. I've been playing Mighty Switch Force, though, because uh, that came in around the same time. Enjoying that a lot. So, yeah, I mean, you know how much we love Way Forward. We haven't done a Way Forward episode yet, have we? We really ought to. Um, mm. I want to take some time to play Vitamin Connection. I haven't played yes, that yet. Yes, me too. Yet. Yeah. But yeah, a way forward celebration episode would be great. We could talk about Boy and his Blob. Oh, yes, yes, because I picked that up on Wii a while back. That needs uh, that needs talking about, I'm sure. Dedicated hug button. A dedicated hug button, indeed. 
All right, uh, should we leave that there then? Do you want to tell people where to find you online then? Absolutely. You can find me on uh, at ccaskyart.com, uh, where I display some of my artwork as well as sell completed pieces. Um, and I've got an Instagram as well, which is just uh, at ccaskyart. So uh, please stop by, give me a follow, uh, let me know what you think. I post a lot of work in progress pieces, etc. on there. Good stuff. And you can find my writing most days on myregamer.net and YouTube videos most days at youtube.com slash Pete Davison. If you're watching the video version of this podcast, there's an audio only version you can subscribe to at soundcloud.com forward slash myregamer. And if you're listening to that audio only version, you can check out the video version with footage from all the stuff we've talked about at the aforementioned YouTube address, youtube.com slash Pete Davison. Just remains for us to say, as always, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.